quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Well, good Monday morning, everyone. We are so glad you're with us. I'm so glad to have Erica Hill by my side. Good nice morning. to be with you, and nice to have you back for I your well-deserved break. Two weeks off. Yeah. Yeah. Well, sometimes <laughs> break work is a break after you're away for two weeks with little kids. True. But we had a good time. <laughs> Thank you for being with me this week. We appreciate it. And we have a lot of news to get to, big breaking news, really around the globe and here at home. And CNN is on scene for all of it. Here are the five things to know for this Monday, July 24th, 2023. Thousands of protesters right now outside of Israel's Supreme Court as the country's parliament is set to vote next hour on the first part of a historic judicial overhaul. This would severely limit the Supreme Court's power there. To put any check on the government's actions, our Hadass Gold is live in Jerusalem. Russia says Ukrainian drones hit two buildings in Moscow while the Ukrainian port region of Odessa gets bombarded again. Alex Markbart has a live look at the damage. An illegal fight over buoys at the border, the Justice Department threatening to sue over them. And today is the deadline for the state of Texas to respond. Concerns have been rising over those buoys and razor wire that has been slicing into migrants. Rosa Flores is live on the border with those new details in that fight. The historic heat wave here in the U.S. that just won't quit. More than 35 million Americans waking up to advisories this morning. Stephanie Elam is live in Las Vegas, where at 3 a.m. it is already well over 90 degrees. And it is not just here in the U.S. Wildfires in Greece forcing thousands to evacuate as that country endures what could become its longest heat wave ever recorded. Sam Kiley there on the latest on the firefight. Five big stories. We have them covered like only CNN can. CNN This Morning starts right now. We do begin in Jerusalem because happening right now, thousands of protesters are on the streets there. Hundreds of businesses closed. Look at those images. Wow. Look at that. That is right now on what could be one of the most consequential days in the history of Israel. Lawmakers are getting ready to vote as soon as next hour on part of the government's plan to curb the power of the country's Supreme Court. President Biden is warning Israel's government against moving ahead with the judicial overhaul, saying overnight it doesn't make sense for Israeli leaders to rush this. The focus should be on pulling people together and finding consensus. But Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says the changes would correct judicial overreach. CNN's Hadass Gold is live in Jerusalem for us this morning. So as of this morning, those pictures really are something, yeah. as Poppy pointed out. Where do things stand? Any sign that these protests are actually have an impact? Well, the debates are wrapping up right now inside the Israeli parliament. Votes are expected to take place soon outside. The heat is boiling, and so are the protesters who have chained themselves to each other uh, right outside the Knesset, right outside the parliament, trying to block the entrances there. Israeli police using things like water cannons to try and disperse them. They say they will not back down until this overhaul is off the table. Even the pressure from President Joe Biden, though, doesn't seem to be moving anything. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is still pushing ahead with the first major legislation of his massive judicial overhaul plan. 
The protests have grown more intense, even after six months. But Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is pushing ahead with legislation to weaken the power of Israel's courts, getting its first real vote in parliament on Monday after a marathon 26-hour debate. Lawmakers will vote on a bill that would strip the Supreme Court of the power to stop government actions if it deems them unreasonable. The court, one of the only checks on government power in Israel, a country with no written constitution. Netanyahu has dismissed the cries of those who say the bill puts the country on a path to dictatorship, saying it's necessary to rein in what he calls an elitist and out-of-touch Supreme Court that has overstepped its authority, not an attack on democracy, he says. But many Israelis disagree. 29 weeks of protests on the streets. Former Israeli presidents, Supreme Court justices, and leaders of Israel's high-tech industry joining the demonstrations. President Biden even sending out loud and clear warnings from Washington. And in a country seemingly always on the edge of the next security conflict, thousands of military reservists pledging that if the law passes, they will no longer heed the call to serve including more than 1,100 elite Air Force officers, from fighter pilots to drone operators. A development worrying enough that Israel's top military officer told the entire Israel Defense Forces in an open letter on Sunday that, quote, no service members have the right to say that they will no longer serve. Adding to the drama, Prime Minister Netanyahu himself urgently admitted to the hospital the night before debates started, going under sedation to have a pacemaker fitted to control in a regular heartbeat. He released a video Sunday saying he felt great as questions swirled around how forthright he's been about his health. But with the bill looking likely to pass on Monday and other bills chipping away at the independence of the courts in the pipeline, many Israelis are asking, what about the health of the Israeli judiciary? Now, even if this bill passes today, it will likely immediately face legal challenges, which will ironically place it in front of the Supreme Court. Now, if the Supreme Court d- declares that this unreasonable law is itself unreasonable, well, that could plunge Israel into an even bigger judicial crisis. Poppy, wow. that, that is remarkable to think that it is the Supreme Court that is being tested here that will have to rule on this and what happens after that. Hadas, thank you for the reporting. New this morning, Ukraine is now taking credit for a drone attack on Moscow overnight. Russia's military says two drones crashed into buildings after being disabled with electronic warfare. Now, one of them was brought down near a Russian defense ministry complex. No injuries have been reported. But if you look here, you can see the windows there on the top of that high rise were blown out. A wave of drones also attacked Russian-occupied Crimea. A top Ukrainian official says the strikes are proof that Russia's air defenses are less and less capable of protecting its skies. Also, video posted on social media shows one of the drones buzzing through the Russian capital. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky had vowed to retaliate after a week of relentless and deadly Russian strikes on the city of Odessa, far away from the front lines, we should note. Our colleague Alex Markard is live inside a historic cathedral in Odessa that was badly damaged. Alex, we're glad you're there. What are you seeing? What are you learning? Good morning, uh, Erica and Poppy. Well, President Zelensky had vowed to make the Russians feel the retaliation. So whether those strikes on Crimea and Moscow overnight uh, are in response to what we've seen here, that is a major question. But it has been 
a week of regular attacks, almost daily attacks by Russia, some of the most severe uh, coming just yesterday on this historic center where I am in the middle of Odessa. It's a UNESCO heritage site, and we are uh, in the building that was perhaps most damaged, the Cathedral of Transfiguration. The cathedral authorities asking us to wear these helmets because there is so much damage that could then fall down. But I want to show you uh, what has happened. This is the most uh, damaged part of the cathedral this corner up here in the top right, this is where we are told a missile or a rocket came plunging through uh, the ceiling, crashing down uh, at least two floors, we're told. Just look at this, incredible uh, levels of damage. And then uh, I'm going to ask my cameraman, uh, Scott McQuinney, to just sp uh, spin around. Uh, you can see here on the, on the floor, this marble floor, how powerful the blast was, shrapnel digging out pockets uh, of that marble. Uh, it is just incredible to see the ceilings of this cathedral blown off. It's as if there is no ceiling at all. The daylight, the sun uh, coming right through there. And then over here is the nave and the altar. And when you look up at the altar here, you can see that it is blown to the side, those pillars leaning to the side. It's only standing up because it is leaning against the wall there. And if Scotty pans up to that beautiful dome, all of the windows have been blown out because of this blast. The frescoes have come off the wall. Uh, the chandeliers have fallen down. Those golden ceilings uh, are falling down. This is what remains of the nave of the cathedral. This would normally be filled with pews. People come here uh, for services and for prayers. Uh, now it is covered in this, this, this smoky, acrid dust that really scratches your throat and your nose. You can see how, how, thick, it, how thick it is. Um, damage done to, to the walls here. Uh, you can see that is from the blast of, uh, of this strike. This church, this cathedral, has a long history. Uh, it was destroyed in 1936 by Stalin when he was in power. It was rebuilt uh, when Ukraine became independent. Now, once again, under attack and severely damaged. Poppy, Erica. Wow. Uh, I mean, it is, it is incredible to see and have you walk us through all of that damage. And, and Russia still is denying uh, that it targeted that church, correct? They are. I mean, they've been going after more relevant sites, if you will, uh, grain storage sites, food storage sites that Ukraine believes uh, those attacks are directly linked to Russia pulling out of this grain deal. Of course, this has nothing to do with the conflict. Uh, Russia is saying they didn't target this historic downtown. They didn't target this church. They blame Ukrainian air defenses. Of course, Poppy and Erica, that argument is completely irrelevant because had it not been for Russia's strikes on this city, uh, there would be no need for air defenses. There would be no need uh, for Ukraine to defend itself. So this city continues to come under withering attack uh, by Russia. And this is why uh, President Zelensky has said that what is needed now is what he calls a full-fledged sky shield, more defenses uh, from the U.S. and other Western allies to protect Odessa and other cities all across this country. Guys. Alex Marquardt live there in Odessa for us this morning. Thank you. An unrelenting heat wave. You have no doubt been feeling it. Scorching the southwest for weeks. Now it's spreading. The National Weather Service warning people the extreme temperatures will expand east throughout this week to the Midwest, then the East Coast and the Northeast. Tens of millions of Americans are already facing these heat alerts, including in Phoenix, where temperatures have hit at least 110 degrees for 24 straight days. Our Stephanie Elam is live in Las Vegas this morning. It is very early there, just after 3 a.m. How hot is it? Uh, according to my calculations here, Poppy, it's 89 degrees at 
three o'clock in Balmy. the morning. That would be a hot day in and of itself. And just very, I mean, you could go for a nice swim and you'd be cooling off. It actually, you know, it's a little perspiration out here right now. But what they're seeing is that temperatures in the West are 15 degrees above normal. And we're starting to see some of these records that have been around for a long time starting to fall. A heat wave bearing down across the globe with little relief in sight. Millions of Americans are under heat alerts. And now wildfires are ablaze, creating more challenges for some communities in the Pacific Northwest. Residents in parts of Maricopa County in Arizona were told by local authorities to evacuate as firefighters battled the Diamond Fire while facing scorching hot temperatures. The heat has been unrelenting in our community. In Phoenix, Sunday marked 24 consecutive days of at least 110 degree temperatures. And in Las Vegas, the city has seen 10 consecutive days of temperatures at or above 110 degrees, tying the longest streak of days with those high temperatures. In parts of Arizona, the heat is so brutal, emergency rooms are filling up with people being treated for heat-related illnesses. Dr. Frank Lovecchio shows us the ice bed used to treat some of the worst patients. We try to throw a little bit of ice you know, on here, on the bottom, get a little bit on the bottom. And then when they get their body on here, we like to throw it all above them. So what's going to happen then is the only thing showing is going to be their head. Okay, that in an ideal world. We also like to throw water on there. This has been shown to drop their temperature a degree almost every five minutes if done properly. It's not just heat stroke. The director of the Arizona Burn Center says people are getting burned on the pavement, accounting for half the patients in the Valley Wise ICU. The pavement is so hot that it only takes a fraction of a second to get a, a pretty deep burn. And to lay on uh, a hot um, pavement or a hot surface for 10 minutes, 20 minutes, a half an hour, an hour, uh, that's full thickness burn. The skin is completely destroyed. Phoenix's mayor explains how they are battling the heat. We have mobile cooling units that can go to an emergency site like a fire. We even have tactics where we can go out with IVs that have been cooled and that can cool people from the inside, which can save lives. Mm. Another program we have that's very popular is our cool pavement program. So we are really just looking at how we design the city. And they have been really working to help out the unhoused population there in Phoenix. And also, the other thing to keep in mind, if people may be collapsing because of heat stroke, and that's when they're coming in contact with that super hot cement and asphalt, and that's where they're seeing these burns. But what we're seeing here in the West is going to start to move its way east, and you should see temperatures rising to about 20 degrees above normal. In Montana, you may see temperatures above 100 degrees, Poppy. Feels wow. like... Sally, the new normal. Yeah, it does. Stephanie, thank you for the reporting from Las Vegas. Texas is facing a crucial deadline today as the Justice Department demands the removal of a floating barrier at the border. We're going to take you there live as this showdown comes to a head. Also new this morning, talks are underway with North Korea's army over the U.S. soldier who fled into that country. We have the latest developments. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Welcome back to CNN This Morning. Texas officials have until today to enter into negotiations over removing these floating barriers that they've installed in the Rio Grande. The Biden administration says it will sue. The barriers are meant to deter migrants. The Justice Department, though, says they not only raise humanitarian concerns, but they are dangerous and illegal. Rosa Flores is covering all of this. She's live in Eagle Pass, Texas, near the border this morning. Good morning to you. Governor Abbott seems dug in. 
He believes they have the authority to do this. So what will happen today? Well, let me show you because the state of Texas has several layers of border barrier. You can see there are two sets of concertina wire. Now, the fact that it's dark and you might not be able to see it, that's one of the issues that critics raise. And that's why they call these traps for migrants. Beyond that, in the middle of the river, you'll see the border buoys. These are four feet in diameter. And according to the U.S. State Department, the state of Texas deployed these buoys without consulting with the U.S. federal government and without obtaining permits. And Mexico's top diplomat complained to the United States, saying that these buoys violate two international treaties. Um, and Mexico's concerned that these buoys could be on Mexican territory. Now, there are more than 80 U.S. Democratic lawmakers who complained to President Biden. They sent him a letter last week saying that he should investigate and also that they should file legal action. Well, late last week, the U.S. DOJ indeed sent a letter to the state of Texas threatening to sue, uh, saying that these buoys were deployed unlawfully, that they raise humanitarian, public safety and environmental concerns. And the U.S. DOJ gave the state of Texas a deadline. Uh, here's what the that letter said in part, quote, if we do not receive a response by 2 p.m. Eastern time on July 24th, 2023, indicating your commitment to expeditiously remove the floating barrier and related structures, the United States intends to file legal action. Well, Governor Greg Abbott fighting back on Twitter saying, quote, Texas has the sovereign authority to defend our border under the U.S. Constitution and the Texas Constitution. This was a thread by the governor on Twitter in which he blames the Biden administration for the problems on the border. And then he ends with this poppy saying, quote, we will see you in court, Mr. President. So does that mean that these buoys are not going to be removed without a court fight? We'll have to see, Pop. We will have to see. Rosa, just before you go, we DPS, Texas DPS has released some images of injuries that migrants have sustained, cuts from wire that some of those migrants have said is underwater. Are they taking legal issue also with those wire barriers behind you, or is it just the buoys? You know, it's unclear based on this letter from the U.S. DOJ because the U.S. DOJ specifically states the floating border barriers and, quote, related structures. So could those related structures also be some of that concertina wire? And I wish this was daylight, Poppy, because we could probably show you some of that concertina wire is actually underwater. And that's one of the, the critics. Uh, that's one of the things that critics say is, quote, those death traps. I mean, if we pan over, if you could pan, Ken, just in the dark, you really can't see the second layer of concertina wire, for example. And that is what critics are saying. And these um, Democratic lawmakers are also highlighting is that these turn into death traps if they are not lit up. And so the owner of the property where we are this morning has asked the state of Texas to remove this concertina wire from her property. And she says that the state of Texas refuses to do so. Now, would she take legal action? She tells me that she could. We will follow all of it. Rosa, thank you for that reporting. A little bit later in the program, we'll be joined by Republican Congressman Tony Gonzalez. This is in his district. We'll get his reaction and his thoughts on this happening there. Erica. New this morning, the U.N. command says conversations have started with North Korea about U.S. Army Private Travis King. King, of course, crossed into the country last week and hasn't been seen or heard from since.
The conversation uh, has commenced with the KPA through the mechanisms of the armistice agreement. CNN's Priscilla Alvarez is at the White House this morning. So, Priscilla, uh, initial conversations, these need to happen. Um, when and how would the White House be involved at all? Erica, we don't know if the White House is involved in the conversation that you heard there, but it would be the start of trying to get some information about Travis King. Recall he crossed into North Korea last Tuesday, and we have not publicly seen or heard from him, and North Korea has not acknowledged that he is in their custody. So there has been no information so far about him and his condition. Now, the United Nations uh, Command is a multinational military force that includes the U.S., and it controls the South Korean side of the joint security area, which King, along with others, was touring last week. But again, we have not heard from the White House yet whether the U.S. is involved in that conversation that the U.N. command is referring to. Now, we do know that U.S. officials have been trying to get in touch with North Korea uh, and talking to their allies to get some information about this U.S. national. But on Friday, National Security Council spokesman John Kirby said that they had no update yet, though he maintained that they would continue to try. Now, this is bringing a lot of concerns here back at home. Just over the weekend, Republican Representative Mike McCall said that he was concerned about the potential price the U.S. may have to pay to have King come home. We don't know his, anything about his condition yet, nor whether there would be a price for him to come home. A lot of these still open questions. We've asked the White House for more information, and we're waiting for their response. Erica? All right, and we know you'll stay on it, Priscilla. Thank you. Twitter's icon, icon, the little bird flying the coop. <laughs> this changes the changes Elon Musk is making now. Barbenheimer shattering box office expectations, but as we perhaps all knew in the end, it's a Barbie world. <laughs> we'll tell you why next. Did you see it? Can I come to your house tonight? In a record-breaking box office blowout, Barbenheimer weekend lived up to the huge expectations. Barbie and Oppenheimer both opened on Friday, but one movie clearly took home the crown. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Barbie. Barbie had the biggest opening weekend of any movie this year. The two films exceeded expectations. The total box office for all movies this weekend was more than $300 million in North America alone. Our Vanessa Yurkevich is here. Both movies blew away expectations. Both of you got to see, you've both seen Barbie, right? I'm the only one on earth who hasn't seen Barbie I haven't, yet. I haven't, I haven't, I haven't, I haven't, I haven't. We can go together. I'll go again with you girls. You loved it. I did love it. You loved but it. But listen, when you talk about blockbuster movies, these are it, right? You have the fanfare, you have the millions in ticket sales, you have sold out theaters. And this is what theater owners want to see, especially after another blockbuster, Mission Impossible, the weekend before did not perform so well. Barbieheimer seems to be the golden ticket. It's the best day ever. It is the best day ever. Barbie painted the world pink, and this weekend, fans came out in droves. Barbie in the real world. That's impossible. Not only is it possible, the film shattered expectations and is on track to make at least $155 million at the U.S. box office in its opening weekend. I'm coming with you. The new movie sends Barbie and Ken to the real world. Cold shower, Ooh. falling off my roof. Ah! And my heels are on the ground. <gasps> to deal with an existential crisis. Oh, this is the real world. <laughs> What's going on? Why are these men looking at me? 
The movie is the biggest domestic start for a solo female director, Greta Gerwig, surpassing Wonder Woman. Mattel and Warner Brothers, they have to just be tickled pink. Barbie is made by Mattel, and the film is distributed by Warner Brothers Discovery, the same parent company as CNN. Everything about this movie and the toy is fun, right? And I think people are looking to escape. Barbie bested this weekend's other blockbuster, Oppenheimer, about the father of the atomic bomb. I don't know if we can be trusted with such a weapon which made at least $80 million over the weekend. The two blockbusters premiering at the same time spawned fan mashups dubbed Barbenheimer. World will remember this day. The two real films contributed to the fourth highest grossing movie weekend ever in North America, something theater owners hope is a sign that the pandemic-fueled slowdown is finally over. It's being celebrated as some sort of novelty, but this is the way it was prior to the pandemic. Like, movies used to come out on the same weekend and compete with one another. But for Barbie fans, it's just fun. I've been waiting for two years. I'm Ivy League Barbie. Barbie has inspired you to be like anything you want. You can be an astronaut, a doctor, a chef. Or even a blockbuster movie star. Get that Barbie! Vanessa Yurkiewicz, CNN, New York. And normally today we might hear from some of the film's stars, uh, but we will not be hearing from them because of the strike. They're on strike. Uh, They won't be posting on social media. They won't be able to talk about the success of the films, uh, and they won't be able to promote the films. Even the writers. The writers were so integral in these two movies. Can't hear from them either because the writers are also on strike right now. The work speak for itself, I guess, right now. Quite an opening weekend, though. Yeah, it makes you think. Maybe you didn't expect that from the Barbie movie, but it will I make cannot you think. wait. I'm still well, thinking about it. I will it. share yes. our reviews. Yes. My mother-in-law very much, it. and I very much enjoyed it. We did not wear pink, though. Thank you, Vanessa. Thanks. I'm definitely wearing pink with my daughter. Okay, ahead, <laughs> uh, this. There's my car with a bear inside of it. So fun. This bear is absolutely destroying the inside of my car right now. Oh, my gosh. <gasps> okay. That happened. A bear got stuck in a woman's car. This was in South Lake Tahoe. Look at that. That actually happened. This bear was able to open the door, get inside, apparently close the door too, but couldn't get out. Police opened the door with a rope. The bear ran free. The car was left, as you can imagine, unrecognizable. The bear chewed and ripped through the interior. And unfortunately, that's not all. She's just cleaning out the poop in my car. (laughs) The bear poop. Job well done. My car smells atrocious but it is so bad oh my gosh <gasps> oh i can't imagine the call to your insurance company after that i mean they have the video evidence so <laughs> yes, they should get i covered. swear it really was a bear call us if your insurance company exactly. denies this <laughs> plus alabama's governor has just approved a new congressional map why a former attorney general says it would make a segregationist proud Welcome back. In a move that may be defying the Supreme Court, the state of Alabama is refusing to add a proposed second majority black district to its newly drawn congressional map. Republican governor of the state, Kay Ivey, insisted uh, instead just approved a map with just one majority black district. Former Attorney General Eric Holder responded to this vote saying, quote, this map and the Republican politicians who supported it would make George Wallace proud. The map now must be approved by federal court next month. 
with us now, CNN political commentator Errol Lewis and CNN senior analyst Ellie Honig. Ellie, we'll get to the, the law of this in a moment because the numbers matter here. But Errol, the fact that this went to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court says, look, you've got to do this to represent the 28 percent black population in your state. The state comes back, redraws it, only makes one majority black, makes the second district 40 percent black when they could have just complied with the law. Yes. Speak to the why and will this stand up? Well, the, the why is that uh, opposition to black empowerment is kind of the core of conservative politics in Alabama. It has been for you know a century now. So this is going to sort of go, go to a trial and they have the right to do this. They can go to trial and yeah. they can sort of play the whole thing out and lose all over again. Uh, because when the Supreme Court issues uh, it, its, its orders, the determinations basically say this goes back to a lower court uh, for outcomes that are not inconsistent with what we found. And so they can they have every right to go and sort of play the whole thing out, lose all over again mm -hmm. uh, and then have some further court action to try and sort of uh, rectify what it was they wanted in the first place. It, it's also important that uh, to note that uh, you don't have to have a 70 percent black district in order to elect uh, a black representative all over the country uh, within the black caucus. There are really interesting cases where there are people who are representing, you know, majority white or, or Latino districts. Um, this is not necessarily going to to play out as a yes, no question about whether or not there will be a second black representative out of out of Alabama. It is fascinating, though, when you when you see the Republican leadership there say that this was a compromise and there was not a single Democrat who supported it in terms of these maps. As we look at all of this to Poppy's question about the, the legal the legal points here, given what we saw, the fact that they're continuing on may end up in court again. Where does all this end? It's going to end back in the courts. I think that's for sure. So just a, a little background here. So the state of Alabama has seven congressional districts, about a 28 percent black population. If you do the math, it works out two out of seven is almost exactly 28 percent. But Alabama's original map only had one majority black district. That was challenged all the way up to the Supreme Court, which in a bit of a surprise ruling struck down that map, including Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Kavanaugh joining with the three liberal justices. They said, no, that violates the Voting Rights Act. Right. Bit of a surprise opinion. Sent it back down, said, you got to go back to the drawing board, give us another one. And the courts said, you should try as hard as possible to create two majority black districts. They came back with one and then another that's 40 percent. So they gave the Alabama legislature a tiny bit of wiggle room. They didn't say no matter what, you have to give us two majority black districts. They said as close as possible. The question is, is that 40 percent as close as possible? They were given an inch. It seems like they've taken a, a foot or so. Notable that the governor, Kay Ivey, said the legislature in our state and our people know our people in our districts better than federal courts. Ultimately, you have to comply with what a federal court says. But I want to yeah. get to another issue, if we could. Dana did a really interesting interview with um, former vice president, now presidential candidate Mike Pence yesterday on State of the Union, obviously asked him about Trump and the potential of facing criminal charges in terms of election interference in January 6th. Listen to what Pence said. The president's words were reckless that day. I had no right to overturn uh, the election. Uh, but uh, uh, while his words were reckless, I, based on what I know, I'm not yet convinced that they were criminal. Criminal charges have everything to do with intent, uh, what, the, what the president's state of mind was. And I, I, I don't honestly know what his intention was that day. What what does his answer become if there is an indictment from Jack Smith on that? Uh, you know, it's extraordinary. I mean, look, I, I wonder if he would say the same thing about what were the intention of the people that were chasing you as you and your family ran for your lives and they were chanting, he, he, hang Mike he, Pence. Interestingly, as you know, said to Dana, he said it's really important to make a distinction 
between those people that said, hang Mike Pence. He said that doesn't represent the whole movement. Yeah, well, I mean, look, uh, that uh, attempt to walk that tightrope has walked him into, what, fifth place, sixth yeah. place in most of the polls. Uh, it doesn't seem to have enabled him to raise any money, build any momentum, or have any realistic chance at winning the Republican nomination. So, um, you know, Mike Pence is, is in a very awkward place. He was part of an administration and is loyal to a, a former president who almost literally was telling people to go and harm him physically. And, and so if he thinks he can somehow convince this movement to get behind him, um, even as he sort of licks the shoes of the person who has scorned him, cursed him, and, and threatened him, uh, you know, good luck with that. I don't, it doesn't seem to be working. The polls don't suggest that it seems to be a viable strategy. In, in terms of his point about intent, right? Because intent is a, is a big part of a criminal charge, right? He does say, he told Dana, and I'm quoting here, the president's words were reckless that day. We don't know that if, if there is an indictment, right? There's still a lot of ifs here. There has been no indictment. We don't know what we'll be talking about in terms of charges. But if we're talking only about that day, based on what we know publicly, that day is not the sole focus. I think that's exactly right. I think Mike Pence is talking past what we know the indictment is likely to be if there is an indictment. Because based on what we learned last week about what's in the target letter, it looks to me like Jack Smith is going to be primarily focusing not on mm -hmm. actual January 6, 2021, but the weeks leading up to it when there was this sort of coordinated effort to commit a fraud conspiracy to steal the election. And so I actually think the way it looks like, again, all qualifiers here, but the way it looks like Jack Smith is going to structure this indictment is going to have the actual events, the actual speech on January 6th be maybe a final chapter, maybe a yeah. postscript, but not the heart of this indictment. Thank you both very much. Appreciate it. Errol, Ellie, tourists racing to the airport in Greece after these wildfires on a Greek island caused huge evacuations. We'll take you live to Greece. It was chaos, absolutely. The surges towards you know, the two or three buses that arrived and everyone screaming and shouting and crying because people couldn't even get on their flights yesterday and were desperate to get home. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. It is horrendous. It's absolutely, I've never been so scared my entire life. I mean, especially when we got, you know, went running down to the beach and she told us that we were all, you know, we were all going to be doomed. Scenes of chaos, fear this morning as wildfires continue to rage in southern Greece. Thousands of tourists and residents have been forced to flee. Some describing those harrowing journeys you just heard a little bit there. Others talking about running from flames, the flames at their backs. A new satellite image shows the smoke drifting away from the island. A number of tourists are now sleeping at airports as they wait to get a flight home. Officials say firefighters continue to battle dozens of fires across the country. All of this, of course, playing out amid a scorching heat wave. CNN Sam Kiley is live for us in Greece this morning. Uh, it is truly the perfect storm, and these numbers are staggering, Sam. They are alarming, Erica, aren't they? And yet again, we're faced with yet another season here in southern Europe where records are likely to be broken. This one being what's anticipated to be, according to the meteorologists of the Greek government, the longest heat wave they have had ever uh, or for very many years, with some temperatures hitting uh, 45 to 48 degrees uh, centigrade. I'm afraid I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit, but extremely egg frying hot. Now, the results of that inevitably are tinderbox uh, forests throughout Greece 
where for every year that passes, more and more are catching fire. This is what unfolded on roads. It's a regular visitor wildfire, and no one knows where or when it will strike. This is tourism in the 21st century. The latest maelstrom in southern Europe, Rhodes, an island of ancient ruins facing a modern apocalypse. Intense heat waves have turned forests into desiccated tinder, yearning for a spark to roar into flame. And anything that fails to flee the inferno has little chance of survival. Greek authorities have evacuated tens of thousands from popular resorts at peak season, and the government says it's the largest such operation in the country's history. All the money, passports, clothing. We had to lend a woman some of my wife's clothes because she had nothing to wear. It was terrible. British tour operators are flying empty planes here to bring desperate tourists home. Powerful winds have made life just about bearable for people on these islands living through this heatwave, but those self-same winds are fanning the flames of these infernos. And the problem is spreading. The latest overnight the island of Corfu, where thousands have now been evacuated, and police are bolstering their ranks in anticipation of more to come. The Greek government has been battling wildfires across the country for a week, during what's expected to be the longest heatwave this country has ever seen. As temperature records are shattered across Europe and the world, every day our planet has become slightly more unlivable. We are experiencing, here and in many countries, extreme climatic events. Please, I renew my appeal to the leaders of the nations to do something more concrete to limit polluting emissions. It is an urgent challenge and cannot be put off. It concerns everyone. Let us protect our common home. As heat waves and fires are escalating yearly in southern Europe, the threat is now even, perhaps, to the pontiff's own home. Now, if that seems like an exaggeration, I mentioned uh, 48 degrees anticipated in southern Europe, Popierica, that's 118 degrees Fahrenheit. I'm told, and all of this happening amid uh, British tourists there being evacuated, the United Kingdom's Prime Minister, though, suggesting that the United Kingdom may start to back away from mm. its uh, targets in terms of reducing dangerous admissions. Erica Poppy? Wow, in the midst of all of this. In the midst of all of it, yes, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Ahead, we're going to take you back live to Jerusalem, where Israelis are out protesting a controversial judicial reform bill. Where things stand as this goes before lawmakers today. Plus this. Someone in Hollywood wrote the scripts. It started with Bend It Like Beckham. It's ended with Bend It Like Leo. Someone in <laughs> I mean, one heck of a debut is being called a dream debut. This massive moment for Lionel Messi's first Inter-Miami match. Fans still talking about it. We're going to talk about it, too. Stick around. Messi! Total 
storybook ending. Inter-Miami fans going mad for Messi. Lionel Messi scoring the winning goal in his debut. Carolyn Mano with us now wearing appropriately pink. Yeah. Like their jerseys <laughs> that I love. Everyone's wearing Barbie pink. I'm wearing Inter-Miami pink. There this you morning. are. Yeah. There you are. Just uh, how people wanted it to go. It was incredible. You know, and I remember speaking with David Beckham about this back in February of 2020, asking him about what Messi's arrival could potentially mean. And now we're seeing it. And what better way to deliver that in this highly anticipated debut where ticket sales have tripled since last year and tickets were going for tens of thousands of dollars wow. than to have this moment at the end of the game to win it, this free kick that just sent everybody into a complete frenzy. And it really kind of underscored what this is going to mean for Major League Soccer. And I, I thought it was so interesting that you have this pantheon of all-time greats that exist in sports that transcend their field of play. And it's such a finite elite group. And he's at the very top of that list. And you had others who are within that pantheon watching Serena. You had LeBron. And they were all kind of There's geeking Beckham, out. Right? Beckham, you yeah. know, And David Beckham, who was very emotional afterwards because he really knows how hard this path has been to get him here. And now he's here through 2025. It is, it is really something. Also, a lot of focus on the ladies, yes. which is um, super exciting. The World Cup. Mm -hmm. So this Wednesday... USA back on the field. Pretty decisive win against Vietnam. Yeah, as expected, right? Yeah. It wasn't about whether or not they were going to win that game against Vietnam, but really about what the goal differential was going to be. And it was a solid effort. They left some goals out there, but I think those goals will come. Now they face the Netherlands. That's a much tougher test. They're ranked ninth in FIFA. So it gets tougher from here. But I want to play for you guys what Naomi Gurma had to say about this next match. Take a listen. I think it's to be expected. And I think going to this World Cup, um, you know, the game has just grown and a lot of federations have grown as well. So I think it's to be expected. And I think it's great to see so many countries coming in and making a great impression on the world stage. Gurma, 23 years old, one of the breakout stars of this tournament, to be sure, the daughter of Ethiopian immigrants. And what's so interesting is that's a problem partly of their own making. I mean, the reason why these federations have grown is because the U.S. women have set the bar. So it'll be really fun from here. Sorry, you said that again? The U.S. women have set the bar? Over and over Love and it. over yeah. and over Love and it. over and over again. Love it. Carolyn, thank you <laughs> sure. very, very much. CNN This Morning continues right now. I was asleep and was woken up by an explosion. Everything started to shake. It felt like the whole building had come down, but it sounded worse than it looked, as it seemed like the whole mall had exploded. Good morning, everyone. We are so glad you're with us on this very busy Monday. Erica Hill with us. Good morning. Nice to be with you. Welcome back. Thank you. We have a lot to get to. Here are the five things to know for this Monday, July 24th. Russia claims drone strikes hit two non-residential buildings in Moscow. No one was hurt. Ukraine's Defense Intelligence Agency says that it carried out the drone attack. A critical day in Israel. The country's parliament is set to vote on the first part of a historical judicial overhaul that would severely limit the Supreme Court's power to put a check on the government's actions. The historic heat wave in the U.S. will not quit. More than 35 million Americans this morning waking up to heat advisories and nearly every corner of the country will face above normal temps. Today is the deadline for Texas to respond to the Justice Department and agree to meet its demands at the border. If it does not, the DOJ is vowing to take legal action. Bye-bye, Birdie. Twitter's official logo now an X. The bird has officially disappeared from the tech social platform. We'll get into it. CNN This Morning starts right now.
This just into CNN. A Ukrainian defense intelligence official is now claiming responsibility for the drone attack on Moscow overnight. An official with the agency who was not authorized to speak publicly is confirming that news to CNN. The Russian military says two drones crashed into buildings in the Russian capital after being disabled with electronic warfare. Now, one of them hit a Russian defense ministry building. No injuries have been reported. There are videos, though, on social media. They show one of the drones buzzing around the Russian capital. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky had vowed to retaliate after relentless and deadly Russian strikes on the city of Odessa. That is where we find our colleague Alex Markarty is live inside in Odessa, inside a historic cathedral that was very badly damaged. Alex, good morning to you. Walk us through what you're seeing. Good morning, Poppy and Erica. Well, we did hear President Zelensky say that the Russians would feel the retaliation for all these strikes in Odessa. Now it appears uh, that this response is at least uh, these two drones that are hitting Moscow, a very brazen attack, uh, the kind of attack that Ukraine rarely claims responsibility, but they are very clearly today after almost a week of these very intense strikes uh, on Odessa, particularly here in the historic city center. This is a UNESCO heritage site. We are inside the Transfiguration Cathedral. Uh, church officials have asked us to put these uh, helmets on because they are doing a lot of work around here. There is a lot of debris, but I do want to show you around. This is the corner that was most damaged of the church. Uh, you can see that the, the ceiling has been completely opened up. Uh, this is where we believe the missile or the rocket came in, uh, completely destroying this corner. It is amazing to see this much daylight in here. It just speaks to the fact that this part of the church no longer has any roofing. Uh, as we come around here, and my cameraman Scott McQuinney is, is showing you the dome up there, uh, the gorgeous dome of this cathedral. All of those windows have been blown out. The frescoes have come down just moments ago. Uh, a huge section of the ceiling came crashing down. Uh, this altar here to the right is only standing upright because it's leaning against that wall. All of those pillars uh, are now have now been uh, knocked over. Uh, this is uh, a cathedral that has that was destroyed back in 1936 and then rebuilt uh, during Ukrainian independence. And it is this kind of strike on civilian infrastructure, on, on buildings that have nothing to do with the war, that has President Zelensky saying that what Ukraine needs now is more air defenses, what he calls a full-fledged sky shield. Poppy, Erica? Wow. Well, as we look at this, I know you sat down with Ukraine's defense minister. You talked about this onslaught of strikes on Odessa. What more did you learn from him? We had a really interesting conversation with the defense minister, Alexei Reznikov, wide ranging. We talked about uh, Ukraine becoming a member of NATO. Uh, we talked about the ongoing counteroffensive. But I started off by asking him about what's going on here in Odessa and whether he has been surprised at the ferocity of these Russian strikes. Take a listen. Honestly, not, because uh, after the February of last year, it's very difficult to surprise me. But it was night after night of drones and missiles, all kinds of different targets. They say it was in response to uh, the attack on the Kerch Bridge. Uh, they every time trying to find the reason for their behavior, the reason how to uh, explain the uh, massive attacks. They try to, to explain that uh, it's a response for some explosives in, in, in their territories. But they uh, fighting with the civilians. That's why I call them looters, uh, rapists, and martyrs. You have also issued a threat saying that you will turn other Russian ships into the Moskva, which was the flagship of the Black Sea Fleet, which you famously sank last April. Are you planning to escalate attacks against Russian ships in the Black Sea? Uh, 
we have capacity, we have weaponry, as we did it with the uh, cruiser Moskva. And if they will threatening us in the Black Sea, we have two response. And I also asked Reznikov about recent attacks on the Kerch Bridge, which connects Russia with Russian-occupied Crimea, as well as uh, attacks on the Crimean Peninsula, which in the past Ukrainian officials have been rather coy about, not claiming responsibility. But we have seen quite a few attacks on both the bridge and on the peninsula lately. Reznikov indicating those will continue. He's making no excuses for the fact that those are vital supply lines, vital logistical nodes for the Russian occupation and its efforts in Ukraine. He says uh, the attacks on those Russian forces uh, on the bridge and, and, and in Crimea will continue. Poppy, Erica. Alex Markar live for us in Odessa this morning. Thank you. Happening right now in Jerusalem, we'll take you to Israel, where they're bracing for a political earthquake as lawmakers in the Knesset begin voting on a controversial plan that would completely overhaul the Israeli judiciary, their Supreme Court. It is happening amid huge protests, many opposing the measure, others in support, trying to have their voices heard as well this morning. And this uproar has been raging for months, uh, mostly over this power that would strip stripped the power from the Supreme Court to block government decisions, which it considers to be unreasonable. Uh, Hundreds of businesses are closed today. Leaders of one of the country's largest labor unions also considering a strike. CNN Sadaskold is live for us this morning in Jerusalem. And you have been covering this for a number of months. Uh, Protesters already being arrested, apparently, outside the Knesset today. What more do you know, Hadass? Yeah, we are on the road that leads actually from the Supreme Court down to the Israeli parliament. That's why you see all these protesters flowing back and forth behind us. They kind of are milling about this whole governmental campus. And they say that they will be here for as long as possible. Now, the protesters down by the Israeli parliament, they are forming human chains. They are being uh, pushed back by Israeli police using water cannons. They say that they are trying to protect democracy, protect the Israeli parliament from this legislation. Now, what this legislation will do, it's one aspect of this massive judicial overhaul package that Benjamin Netanyahu's government has been trying to push through for months. But this specific legislation would strip away the Supreme Court's ability to stop government actions that the Supreme Court deems unreasonable. Now, proponents of this law say that it's necessary, that the Supreme Court overreaches, that there needs to be balance. But opponents of this, these protesters here, that this will give the government unfettered access to essentially do what they want. Because, guys, the Supreme Court here is essentially the only check on government power because of the parliamentary system and how it's set up. Adding to all of this drama right now, as these votes are expected to take place within the next few hours or so, is that the Prime Minister himself, Benjamin Netanyahu, has had his own major health issues. Over the weekend, he had essentially an emergency procedure to install a pacemaker after a heart monitor indicated a problem. He literally came straight from the hospital, essentially, to the Israeli parliament for these votes. That is the situation here right now. And he is indicating that he and his government will continue forward with these votes despite these protests, despite the thousands of Israeli military reservists who have said they will not heed the call to serve if this legislation passes. That causes major questions about Israel's military preparedness. It's obviously been a very tense time in this region, but they are pushing forward. This even after President Biden once again weighing in, the second time in a week, calling on Israeli leaders. He's saying it doesn't make sense for Israeli leaders to rush this, he says in a statement. The focus should be on pulling people together and finding 
finding a consensus. But we just heard from the former Prime Minister Yair Lapid, who's now opposition leader. He was speaking to the media in the Israeli parliament saying that consensus compromise talks so far have failed. The time is running out. The clock is ticking. These, these votes will be taking place. But even if these votes pass and the government has the votes to do so, they do have the majority. This will likely face an immediate challenge. And where will this be challenged, guys? in the Israeli Supreme Court. So the Supreme Court could be ruling on its own positions on whether it can declare something unreasonable. And if the government doesn't listen to that, then there could be a huge other political crisis here. Yeah, that is just remarkable. Hadass, thank you very much. Reporting from the ground in Jerusalem, where this is all happening as we speak. Well, today is the deadline for Texas Governor Greg Abbott to respond to the Justice Department's threat of a lawsuit over Abbott's latest effort to stop illegal immigration into the state of Texas. The DOJ is demanding Texas remove this 1,000-foot barricade of razor-wire-wrapped buoys in the Rio Grande. Abbott has responded on Twitter saying he'll see President Biden, quote, in court. CNN's Rosa Flores is live this morning in Eagle Pass, Texas, with more here. So showdown today. What are we expecting today, Rosa? Let me show you, Erica, because we're on the Rio Grande and you can see that there are two layers of concertina wire. This is part of the border barriers set out by the state of Texas. And beyond that, you'll see in the middle of the river these buoys. Now, these are four inches, four feet in diameter, excuse me. And according to the U.S. State Department, the state of Texas did not consult with the federal government before deploying these. They didn't even get permits before deploying the buoys. And now a top diplomat in Mexico has complained to Washington saying that these violate two international treaties and Mexico's concerned that these buoys could be on Mexican territory. Now, uh, more than 80 U.S. Democratic lawmakers pressuring President Biden to investigate this and also to file legal action against the state of Texas. Well, late last week, the U.S. DOJ sent a letter to the state of Texas saying that the construction of these buoys is unlawful and that it raises concerns that are humanitarian, public safety and environmental as well. And the U.S. DOJ giving the state of Texas a deadline. And here's what the letter says in part, quote, if we do not receive a response by 2 p.m. Eastern on July 24, 2023, indicating your commitment to expeditiously remove the floating barrier and related structures, the United States intends to file legal action. Now, Governor Greg Abbott fighting back on Twitter in a thread saying in part, quote, Texas has a sovereign authority to defend your border under our border, excuse me, under the U.S. Constitution and the Texas Constitution. Uh, Governor Abbott goes on to blame President Biden for the problems on the border and ends the thread with this, Erica, saying, quote, we will see you in court, Mr. President. So does this mean that Texas will be defiant on deadline day? We will have to see. Yeah. Erica, we'll be watching. Certainly makes it sound that way, doesn't it? Rosa, appreciate it as always. Thank you. All right. It is hot. I don't have to tell you that. But at least 35 million people are under excessive heat warnings this morning as dangerously high temperatures bake areas of the south and the west that have been scalding for weeks. The relentless heat could break even more records in the few days ahead. Little relief is in sight. Our Stephanie Elam is live in Las Vegas this morning. And it is very early. It is just after four o'clock in the morning and it is very hot. It is so hot, Poppy. But you know what? It's cooled down one degree since I last talked to you. It's 88 <laughs> degrees. I mean, we might as well just like hang out here, cool off. Everything's better. But it's going to go up to about 106 degrees today. We've seen a record number of days above 110. May not beat 
that record today may just match it. But still, these heat, hot, hot days are making it very dangerous for so many people who are outside with these temperatures 15 degrees above normal. A heat wave bearing down across the globe with little relief in sight. Millions of Americans are under heat alerts. And now wildfires are ablaze, creating more challenges for some communities in the Pacific Northwest. Residents in parts of Maricopa County in Arizona were told by local authorities to evacuate as firefighters battled the Diamond Fire while facing scorching hot temperatures. The heat has been unrelenting in our community. In Phoenix, Sunday marked 24 consecutive days of at least 110 degree temperatures. And in Las Vegas, the city has seen 10 consecutive days of temperatures at or above 110 degrees, tying the longest streak of days with those high temperatures. In parts of Arizona, the heat is so brutal, emergency rooms are filling up with people being treated for heat-related illnesses. Dr. Frank Lovecchio shows us the ice bed used to treat some of the worst patients. We try to throw a little bit of ice you know, on here, on the bottom, get a little bit on the bottom, and then when they get their body on here, we like to throw it all above them. So what's going to happen then is the only thing showing is going to be their head. Okay, that in an ideal world. We also like to throw water on there. This has been shown to drop their temperature a degree almost every five minutes if done properly. It's not just heat stroke. The director of the Arizona Burn Center says people are getting burned on the pavement, accounting for half the patients in the Valley Wise ICU. The pavement is so hot that it only takes a fraction of a second to get a, a pretty deep burn. And to lay on uh, a hot um, pavement or a hot surface for 10 minutes, 20 minutes, a half an hour, an hour, uh, that's full thickness burn. The skin is completely destroyed. Phoenix's mayor explains how they are battling the heat. We have mobile cooling units that can go to an emergency site like a fire. We even have tactics where we can go out with IVs that have been cooled and that can cool people from the inside, which can save lives. Mm. Another program we have that's very popular is our cool pavement program. So we are really just looking at how we design the city. And keep in mind that pavement, that asphalt, according to one of the doctors we interviewed there in Phoenix, said it could be up to 180 degrees, so just below boiling. Just think about how hot that is and how dangerous that is. On top of it, Noah's saying that we've seen 5,000 records, heat records, either broken or tied during the last 30 days. So obviously, Poppy and Erica, that this is something that this human-induced climate change is something we're going to have to deal with moving forward because a lot of these desert communities, these places dealing with this extreme heat, are going to have to adapt as we move further. And yeah. this doesn't seem to be going away. It does not. Stephanie Elam, appreciate you being out there in the heat. Thanks. Well, it appears Donald Trump will face trial on the classified documents case before the 2024 general election, but also after having had a chance to lock in his party's nomination. Judge Eileen Cannon scheduled the trial for May of 2024, with a start date as early as May 20th. By then, all but six states will have held their primaries or caucuses. So keep in mind here in 2016, Trump had the GOP nomination locked in by May. So if history is any indication, we should know who the presumptive nominee is by the time this trial gets underway. CNN senior legal analyst Ellie Honig is here. He's a former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, also one of the smartest people I know. OK, so walk me through what we're looking at in terms of, first, the Mar-a-Lago documents case, this May 2024 trial date. Right. 
How likely is it that that holds? So, Erica, I would write that date in pencil Mm -hmm. in in the old calendar book, and here's why. So, going into this decision, DOJ had asked to try this case in December of this year, five months from now, Donald Trump had asked the judge to schedule the case for, well, never. Never. Yes, exactly. (laughs) He said just sometime after the election. Now, the judge has set this late May trial date, but here's the thing you have to understand. The judge in her order set 33 intermediate dates. You don't have to read all these. Just know there's 33 deadlines before May. If one of these falls back, it pushes back all the others. It's a domino cascade type effect. Now, one example. The judge has given the parties five weeks here to brief and argue their motions. There are some very complicated motions that Donald Trump is surely going to bring if there's an indictment. He's going to challenge the search warrant of Mar-a-Lago. He's going to challenge prosecution's use of his communications Mm -hmm. with his attorneys. We know from Donald Trump's lawyers they're going to argue prosecutorial misconduct. Let me tell you, five weeks is very optimistic to get all of those issues briefed. Now, let's look at the bigger picture, okay? Let's remember Key here, November 5th is the election date. Realistically, we are not going to have a trial October, September. It's just too close to the election. The judge is not going to countenance that. Now, this judge has set the trial date for the end of May. This is realistically a six or so week trial. It's complicated. That's going to carry us through into July. And so if you see here, if Donald Trump is successful in pushing this back just a couple of months. Doesn't take much. We're in the red zone and it's not realistically going to happen before the election. So there's also, so this is one case, again, and as we've been saying for a long time now, but we'll continue saying there has not been an indictment for January 6th. If, however, there is one, yeah. what are the chances that that trial could happen before the election? So things are getting really crowded on the calendar here. Let's remember, there are two indicted cases, as mm-hmm. you say. There's the one we just talked about, Mar-a-Lago, and also the hush money case. So let's look at the calendar again Our key date here, November, and again, I think we need to block off October and September. We're not going to have a trial that close to the election. Now, the Manhattan hush money case is already scheduled for trial in late March. That's going to carry us through to April. Mm -hmm. We have Mar-a-Lago now scheduled for late May. That's going to carry through June and July. So where could a potential January 6th indictment fit? This is too early. We're not going to get a trial that's going to start five months from now on January 6th. And this, to me, looks like it's too late. So I don't see a readily available calendar spot for a potential January 6th location unless unless one of these moves, unless the Manhattan case moves or unless the Mar-a-Lago case moves. And could it move at the request of the special counsel or the attorney general? Or how would that work? Either one of them. So the prosecutor would have to agree to move it to seek a continuance, would have to then go to a judge. The defense would have to agree, too, by the way. Donald Trump may have some say here as well. So things are getting really crowded on the old trial counter. And there's going to be a really important jockeying for position here or maybe Mm -hmm. some willingness to move out beyond the November election in order to allow other cases to go first. We'll see. Wow. It's going to keep your calendar busy, too. Yeah. So just so you know, you should black off all these dates. You'll be needed. That's a good visual Every representation month. of what, what we've all got coming. <laughs> Ellie, yeah. thank you. Ellie doesn't get to take vacation any of those days. Yeah, but, uh, I'm right here this day, <laughs> February 29th, I'm off. Thank you. <laughs> oh, here. Thanks. That was really interesting, Ellie. Appreciate it. All right. This story we've been following closely. Newly released body camera video shows police, a police canine dog, look at this, comes, turns around, attacks an unarmed black man who was surrendering With his arms in the air, we're tracking the latest developments in this investigation. And it appears to be official this morning. So this morning, Elon Musk getting rid of Twitter's iconic bird logo. More CNN This Morning to come after the break.
Well, this morning, the NAACP is slamming an Ohio police department after an officer unleashed a canine attack dog on an unarmed black man who had his hands in the air. We're going to show you some of the video. A warning first, though. It's difficult to watch. Do not release the dog with his hands up. The Columbus chapter of the NAACP is calling what happened barbaric. This happened on July 4th in Circleville. That's just south of Columbus. But law enforcement officials just released the body camera video. Our Polo Sandoval has been reporting it out and joins us. Now, I understand there's an investigation going on, right? It's underway, guys. Just to make sure that we can draw that distinction between the agencies that were out there, it was the Ohio State Highway Patrol that initiated the traffic stop. But it's the actions of the Circleville, Ohio Police Department that are being called into question. The video... Disturbing video that you're about to see. It shows one of their canine units appears to release their canine officer as the suspect has his hands up. The footage provided by Ohio State Highway Patrol is disturbing, but now under scrutiny after a man was mauled by a police officer's canine. July 4th, Jackson County, Ohio. A case report shows a highway patrol officer in a marked vehicle tried stopping the driver of this big rig for a missing mud flap. The man behind the wheel, later identified by authorities as 23-year-old Jadarius Rose, drives on, and a chase begins. About 20 minutes into the pursuit, the big rig is seen rolling to a stop. Get out of the truck! But that lasts only a few seconds. The driver continues to flee, and officers stay on him for another eight minutes. They took off again. Uh, we're heading northbound. It wasn't until police used tire deflation devices that the chase came to a slow but dramatic and disturbing stop. That's a Circleville, Ohio Police Department canine unit rolling up to the scene. After repeated orders from state troopers, the driver eventually steps out of the rig, his hands in the air as requested. A patrolman is heard asking the canine to not be released. Though it's unclear if he could be heard by all officers on scene, that's when the canine is deployed. Do not release the dog with his hands up. Do not release the dog with his hands up. Do not release the dog with his hands up. Don't get the dog off of it. After the canine takedown, an officer approaches, then quickly walks away, her hands covering her face as Rose screams in pain. The frustration audible in the voice of another state officer. Was that not loud enough? After the dog is removed, officers move in to arrest Rose and administer first aid. Yeah, you just let a dog bite me. All you had to do was come to me. I was coming, all the guns pointing at me. How do you expect me to respect you? You got a gun pointing at me. It's like 20 of y'all. All you had to do was stop, brother. I did stop. A spokesperson for the Ohio State Highway Patrol tells CNN as troopers were attempting to gain compliance by providing verbal commands to the suspect, the Circleville Police Department deployed their canine, which resulted in the suspect being bitten. CNN has reached out to the Circleville Police Department for comment. Police say Rose was taken to a local hospital where he was treated and released before being taken to jail. His attorney declined to comment. So I should mention, I did read over that case report, and in it, the trooper is actually right that they were able to have a conversation with Rose while he was being treated at the hospital. He said that he did not, according to the report, did not understand why he was being stopped. He was simply trying to haul a load over to Garden City, Ohio, before making his way home. So he certainly wasn't aware, or at least said he wasn't aware as to why he was being pulled over. As for the NAACP, you guys mentioned, him at the top, mentioned them at the top. They are not just appalled by what we just saw, but also calling for a thorough investigation. Yeah. Thank you for the reporting. Keep us posted. Turning out to central Missouri, where a boat smashed into the home on the edge of a lake, injuring eight people. Troopers say the boat ran aground. 
struck the home, then overturned. Look at you can see what happened there. Uh, threw everyone off that boat. This happened on Saturday on the Lake of the Ozarks. Police say the driver was arrested for boating while intoxicated. Donald Trump remains GOP frontrunner by a mile in the race for the White House, but a new poll in South Carolina shows Florida Governor Ron DeSantis slipping into third behind Nikki Haley. How concerned should the DeSantis camp be? A new set of polls is raising fresh concerns for Ron DeSantis's presidential campaign. Among likely South Carolina Republican primary voters, the Florida governor is now polling behind former Governor Nikki Haley, sitting some 35 points below former President Trump. And if you take a look at Iowa, DeSantis is trailing Trump there by 30 points among likely caucus goers. Tim Scott, as you can see, just behind the governor. Both polls put out by Fox Business are fueling new scrutiny about DeSantis's standing in the race. Joining us now to discuss politics reporter at Semaphore, Shelby Talcott, national politics team leader at Bloomberg, Mario Parker, and CNN <coughs> political commentator, Errol Lewis. Nice to see all of you with us this morning. So when we look at these numbers, it is something. We've talked about what the concerns are for the DeSantis campaign. Is it the media? Is it the money? Uh, I mean, the numbers, Errol, should probably be raising a concern or two. Um, what does this tell the campaign? Are they going to, do you think, take well, it they, in? They've, they've got a real problem, and, and they've, re they've recognized it. That's why they've had this campaign shakeup, right? They, they are burning through the money, right? They're spending 40 cents on every dollar that they raise. That's one problem. And then the immediate problem is if you look at the polls, they've spent millions of dollars, and he's fallen further behind. He started out, you know, in decent position as a, you know, sort of striking distance of Donald Trump. Now, depending on the poll you're looking at, he's 30 points behind. He's 40 points behind in the latest Harris poll. Uh, and he doesn't seem to be closing that gap. And so if you spend a lot of money and you end up in a worse position, you've got a, 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 an immediate problem. And then the larger problem, of course, is that you can't figure out which state Ron DeSantis wins in order to get into well, this race. He's just behind in all of the early races, and South Carolina is just one more example of that. And that Iowa poll that you just showed, the 30 points behind Trump. Shelby, what's interesting is in the interview that Jake Tapper did with Ron DeSantis last week, he was like, Iowa, 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 organize, organize. Can he pull a McCain here, rejigger the campaign, go on to win the I, I, primary? I think it's too soon to tell. You You can't obviously count him out completely. I think it's gotten a lot tougher than it was maybe three or four months ago for Ron DeSantis. Other campaigns are really seeing the opportunities now. Tim Scott's super PAC just bought $40 million in ads. He has a ton of money to spend. Even Nikki Haley. he's got Haley great himself. favorability ratings. Yes. Uh, and, so, and so I think it's too soon to tell. I certainly think it's notable that, um, as, as you said, he's, starting to kind of reset his campaign. I think the question is, is it going to be enough? Right. And is it, and did they miss the window? Is the issue too, is the issue the campaign, Mara, or is the issue the candidate? Hmm. As of right now, it looks to be the candidate, right? Ron DeSantis tried so hard to avoid being the next Scott Walker, the next Jeb Bush, that it's become self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm -hmm. When you see him now, it looks like he's overthinking every move, both on his part and the campaign as well. And so at this point, it does look like it's more the candidate there. Okay, so let's stick on Florida for a moment, because the state of Florida's legislature passed a change in the way that they teach kids about slavery. And that change, and I'm going to read the language directly from the text of what passed, because 
You can't argue with the words. It says a clarification instruction needs to include how slaves develop skills, which in some instances could be applied for their personal benefit. And on page 17, it says instruction includes acts of violence perpetrated against and by African-Americans. And it goes through a number of examples, Tulsa race massacre, et cetera. Um, Ron DeSantis was asked about this. Initially sort of deflects Errol and then doubles down. Here's what he said. I didn't do it and I wasn't involved in it, um, but I think um, I think what they're doing is I think that they're probably going to show um, some of the folks that eventually parlayed, uh, you know, being a blacksmith into into doing things later later in life. Being enslaved. Uh, I, why? Apparently. Why? Yeah. Why is he doing that? That's a history major, by the way, from uh, Yale College. Um, right. The the, uh, the the look the the reality is he has chosen um, these non-economic issues to to run on to uh, attack Black history to attack what he calls wokeness you know uh, to uh, to attack women's rights and and, and abortion rights um, those are the issues that he thinks are going to carry him to the Republican nomination in this particular case it's a, just a disgraceful hash of of history. I mean, they just got all of it wrong. Even in the clarification mm-hmm. after that that press conference, they put out this list of you know black people to whom who would fit into that category. Right. And you know, I think twelve of the fourteen were actually freedmen. They actually had not been enslaved. I mean, they just don't know what they're talking don't about. Don't let the facts get in the way of a don't good narrative here, right? Don't let the facts get in the way of, 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 of a disgraceful pander in, in the case of Ron DeSantis. You know, I, what stood out to me, too, is there was a tweet from, from Will Hurd, which I think we have, that we can put up here, where he said, unfortunately, it has to be said, slavery wasn't a jobs program that taught beneficial skills. It was literally dehumanizing and subjugated people as property because they lacked any rights or freedom. That's what I keep coming back to, Mark. We should know the history. I would hope that we can all as a country collectively agree slavery was wrong, and it was certainly not a jobs program. The fact that he does keep doubling down on this, that there are not people around him, too, to say, hey, stop. That's remarkable. He's severely undercutting his general election uh, strategy that he he's the candidate that can supersede Donald Trump, right? I mean, the fact is, as Errol said, this is disgraceful to defend slavery, to double down on it. And now we're at the point in this campaign for, where every couple of weeks, DeSantis is doing something bizarre. Three weeks ago, it was the LGBTQ video. This weekend, it's doubling down on slavery was essentially a jobs program as well. So you're seeing his campaign torpedo as he just leans into this culture war fight. Let's listen to uh, former Governor Chris Christie, who's also running for the Republican nomination, because he's been focused on undercutting Trump, and now he's, you know, really going after DeSantis. Here's his response to what DeSantis said. We're arguing about these issues, um, these smaller issues, when we've got big issues in our country, like runaway inflation that continues to hurt families. We're dividing our country into smaller and smaller and smaller pieces. Yeah. And politicians are pitting them against each other to create conflict. And that's not going to make the country bigger, better, stronger, or freer. Part of that answer that always the most telling to me was, I didn't do it, it wasn't my idea, it's not leadership, is what Chris Christie said about DeSantis. Yeah, I, he has a point. And, and he has a point particularly with Ron DeSantis, I think, because Ron DeSantis historically has been the leader who is involved in everything. I mean, there's there's tons of articles out there and and their campaign will tell you that it's really Ron DeSantis and Casey DeSantis. They make the final decisions. They're they, their own advisors. 
And so you can't really have both. You can't be that kind of a leader and then also say, well, this, this wasn't my doing, especially when you're so far focused on something like education. Thank you all. Shelby, Mario, Errol, appreciate it. Twitter saying goodbye to the Bluebird logo. Hello to X. That's right. What's behind the new rebranding strategy from Elon Musk? There it is on the Twitter headquarters. <laughs> yeah. We'll be back. In Money This Morning, Elon Musk unveiling Twitter's new logo by changing his profile picture and tweeting out this. X. Musk also warned of another major change, tweeting, soon we shall bid adieu to the, bird, to the Twitter brand and gradually all the birds. CNN Chief Business Correspondent Christine Romans is here. Okay, so the brand change has us talking, but this is really about bigger picture what is happening. Yeah. He wants to have an app that is for everything, and that's what his ex is going to be. In the meantime here, he's changing how it looks, and it happened this morning. Just a couple of hours ago, you don't see that little blue bird anymore. You see a, a X on the uh, mm -hmm. on the Twitter platform. And it's interesting because he's rebranding this as something new, getting rid of the bird, he says. But this is defined. The bird defines this platform for 10 years. I mean, tweet as a noun and a verb didn't really have the power that it did before this, you know, this platform made it um, something that we all talk about. So many of us. Uh, talk about. But look, he took over this company, took it private. Uh, he's cut ad revenue in half since that happened. Um, he's got a, a billion and a half in inter annual interest payments. Uh, revenue, um, three billion down sharply from 2021. So there have been Twitter woes since Elon Musk took over. He is absolutely remaking this thing. Um, it is smaller. It's going to look a lot different. And this is just the next iteration of that for one of the world's richest men. You look confused. Well, right? Because I, I am. am. <laughs> I am. I don't. And I'm I, I probably wouldn't understand a lot of things in Elon Musk's head. In, in all seriousness, why you would throw away, to your point, sort of all this capital that they have in the world. This is a tweet. It became a noun. It became a verb. Right. It's so well known for certain things. It's one thing to change it. But are you going to say, we were talking in the break, you're going to say, oh, I, I X, X instead of I tweeted? X is getting rid of things. X is cutting things out. That's what I, I don't understand as well. But X has a big place in his yeah. brain, right? SpaceX. I think he might have named one of his children, children. X. Um, he X is part of, and they he already named this company uh, X.com. When you go to X.com, it automatically is rerouted huh. uh, to Twitter. But you're right. Why throw away something that is so, a brand that is so recognizable for something that is an enigma? X is kind of an enigma, isn't it? If yeah. it Xing out. You're right. That's yeah. a good point. I don't know. We shall see. Getting in, in the mind of Elon Musk is always a good luck with that. Difficult, <laughs> difficult place to be. Thanks, Christine. Good to see you. Thanks. Investigators turning their focus to the New York home of a suspected serial killer as they literally dig for clues. Plenty of questions for the local sheriff. He's going to join us. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. This morning, investigators will continue digging up the backyard of the alleged Gilgo Beach serial killer. Uh, these are aerial images over the Long Island home of the suspect, Rex Hewerman, from over the weekend. Investigators are using heavy equipment, as you can see there, a police dog and ground-penetrating radar in the search. Sources telling CNN investigators believe he may have committed the killings in his home, just miles from where the remains of multiple women were found. Now, just a reminder, at this point, police have charged Sherman in three murders. They say he is the prime suspect in a fourth, but he has not been charged in that death. 
Huerman has pleaded not guilty. He's currently in jail. Joining us now is the Suffolk County Sheriff, Errol Toulon Jr. Uh, Sheriff, good to have you with us. Uh, we should point out he's he's in your jail there. We were talking just a little bit in the break. I was asking you anything that may have happened overnight I should know about. And one of the things you said that stood out to me was that this is the investigation isn't over, but there was more than we envisioned. How much more? In what sense? No, I, I think when, uh, first of all, good morning and thank you for having me on. I think when we talk about uh, more than what we envision is a multi-state jurisdictional uh, now where we're searching the various residents that he uh, uh, owned. And so with that, you know, I, I don't think any of us ever anticipated going that far and, and looking at any uh, missing persons or any murders that may have occurred uh, along the eastern seaboard or anything that's any commonality with this particular crime. Uh, it feels so broad. We showed those pictures uh, just as we were introducing you, and I think we have them up again there, of digging in the backyard. What Can you tell us the evidence that led to that decision to begin digging there? And, and can you tell us specifically what they may be looking for? You know, of course, this is an ongoing investigation. And I think the most important thing that everybody needs to understand is that we need to make sure that the investigation leads us and not us leading the investigation. And so, you know, we're still on his property. That's where um, that digging is occurring because it is part of his residence. And so there may have been something that alerted the investigators uh, that they should start searching the property. Mm -hmm. But there's nothing uh, that we can disclose because it still is an active investigation. When you talk about the, the other places on the eastern seaboard, I believe there was some property in South Carolina that, based on tax records, belonged to the suspect. Um, is that the area you're referring to or is there somewhere beyond that? No, really, uh, the South Carolina area and, of course, uh, going west to Las Vegas mm -hmm. is uh, the areas that are currently under investigation where uh, investigators in those states are assisting uh, Suffolk County in, in this particular with this particular individual. Um, the suspect is being held in your jail. As I understand it, you've had a couple different interactions with him. He hasn't had any visitors uh, beyond speaking with attorneys, as I understand it. What was he like in those interactions? You know, very stoic. And if you think about someone that two weeks ago was walking around freely, um, he seemed very comfortable uh, inside of the cell. Uh, he was laying on, on his bunk. Uh, he still is under suicide watch, of course. And our mental health staff will be evaluating to see if that status should continue or not. When we look at where things stand, I know this is a broad investigation, as we've been talking about this morning. There are also another a number of other unsolved murders, remains that were found uh, in Gilgo Beach. Um, the Suffolk County Police Commissioner, Rodney Harrison, was asked about that and where the case stands. I just want to play what he had to say and get your take. Is this case over from your perspective? Not even close. You know, we still have the other six bodies that were recovered. Uh, on Ocean Parkway, you know, we have uh, some work to do. And uh, this task force is gonna stay intact. Um, is Rex Huerman uh, connected to these other bodies? Time will tell. So there is this task force. I mean, you know, there are questions about how long this investigation will go on. As you point out, you're letting the investigation lead you. Um, but, but where do you stand on that? I mean, how long do you think this could in fact last? You know, I think that this investigation is going to last as long as it takes to make sure that every uh, piece of evidence that's gathered, every suspect, or if it's just Mr. Human, uh, will be excluded or precluded from um, 
uh, this investigation or, or possibly being a suspect. I think one of the things that you think about is that, you know, every piece of evidence that's gathered has to be tested, has to be looked at. People have to be interviewed. And so this is something, and as I said earlier, it's a multi-jurisdictional investigation. And so this is going to take some mm-hmm. time. Uh, the New York Post was reporting the police found a soundproof room in Hewerman's basement. Uh, they believe at least one of the victims was killed there. Can you confirm that? Uh, no, I cannot confirm that at all because the investigation is still active. Is that, uh, would you deny that? Uh, I would not deny that either. So neither confirm nor deny as we wait for more details, because as you said, the investigation is not over yet. Is there one thing that has surprised you in this last week or so? Uh, you know, in our dealings with, with human, uh, you know, we, we have had some media that has attempted to reach out to him. Uh, my concern right now outside of the investigation is make sure that Mr. Human is brought to justice in the courts and not in our jails. And so we're taking every measure to make sure that that happens. Sheriff Errol Tulon, really appreciate your time this morning. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Poppy? Really telling, Erica, thank you very much. Meantime this morning, significant protests in Israel as lawmakers begin voting on a bill that could leave the judiciary, the Supreme Court of Israel, essentially unchecked. We'll take you live to Jerusalem. Texas officials facing a deadline today to enter talks over what the DOJ is calling dangerous and illegal floating barriers in the Rio Grande. Just ahead, we'll speak with Republican Congressman Tony Gonzalez, who represents a border district in Texas, for his take. I think if this law passes, it's just part of a, of a bigger story of the judicial coup, and we're going to we're going to be here to fight it step by step. We're not going home. We're not going anywhere. Um, we're going to be on the streets. We're going to stay on the streets. We were here for half a year and we'll be here as long as it takes. Good morning, everyone. We're glad you're with us right now. A pivotal day in Israel's history is unfolding as we speak. Hundreds of thousands of protesters taken to the streets as lawmakers vote to potentially severely weaken the country's Supreme Court. Texas is facing a crucial deadline just hours from now as the Justice Department demands the removal of a floating barrier at the border. We'll speak to the Republican congressman whose district lies along the Rio Grande. And a historic weekend at the box office. Did you go to the movies? A lot of people did. The Barbenheimer sensation taking the nation by storm. We'll break down which movie came out on top. This hour of CNN This Morning starts right now. we begin this morning on the battle between Texas and the Justice Department over those floating barriers at the southern border. Well, that battle coming to a head today. Just hours from now, Republican Governor Greg Abbott is facing a crucial deadline. The DOJ threatening to sue if he doesn't commit to removing the barriers that Texas set up in the Rio Grande to repel migrants. The governor is refusing to budge. He says his state has, quote, sovereign authority to defend the border. Joining us now is Republican Congressman of Texas, Tony Gonzalez. His district stretches across the majority of Texas's southern border with Mexico, about 800 miles along the Rio Grande. We appreciate you being with us this morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. According to the Biden administration, in just a week, CBP agents reported a number of disturbing things, including dozens of migrants with injuries, broken limbs, drownings, and that includes several children, babies, really, under the age of one. Do you, Congressman, support Governor Abbott's use of these floating barriers and what is happening right now there? 
The barriers, I think it's a small portion of the overall uh, amount of, of, uh, of water on the river, but uh, they're very popular. I, I think for, for folks that, that want to see something different and that want to see this come to an end, they're very popular. Um, it, it is all very tragic, though. It is absolutely horrible. The amount of people that have died along this very dangerous track. Uh, last year, there was 856 mm -hmm. migrants that perished. The year before that, 568. Uh, so it, something has to change. But, but I, I don't know if the boobies are necessarily the answer. Yeah. But it's certainly, uh, we got to look beyond that. But Congressman, I ask you because this is your district. You say they're popular, but do you support it? Let me show you some images that came from Texas DPS. These are images of injuries that have happened from migrants. And I don't have to tell you, you've read the reporting, the New York Times reporting uh, on a number of migrants there who have talked about being cut underwater by barbed wire. Texas DPS trooper and paramedic Nicholas Wingate sent that email to his supervisors detailing how concerned he was. Let me read you some of those concerns about what's happening. Quote, we were given orders to push people back into the water to go back to Mexico. He read about a four-year-old little girl who tried to cross and was told to go back. Then she passed out because of exhaustion. He also wrote about experiencing a 19-year-old woman who was in pain because of the wire and was doubled over, and this was all happening as she was pregnant and having a miscarriage. So do you support what Governor Abbott is doing there? I support the buoys because they are a deterrent in preventing people from entering the country illegally. But we have to be we have to be compassionate in, in how we handle anyone. I don't care who they are. I don't care regardless of their legal status. I would much rather see not one person have to step one foot in that water because it is dangerous. You're going to drown. You're going to get injured. But here's the reality is many people are leaving very desperate situations in Venezuela and Nicaragua and all throughout the country, all throughout the world. But I I don't want to see them get in the river at all. And I hope when they okay. see these buoys, they turn around. Uh, but but I also don't want to see any law enforcement not hand out water, not treat people with, with humanity. But you have this. It's always somebody else's fault but mine. And it's always somebody else that's going to solve it. I'm of the mindset, let's come together. This isn't a Democrat or Republican issue. How do we just fix it? My district wants it solved. Have you spoken to Governor Abbott about this? I have not. I have not spoken with him. Uh, I've spoken with uh, deep, some DPS uh, 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 folks and, and others uh, on the ground. I often get my information directly from those on the ground that are doing the work. And the part that bothers me is before you would see DPS and Border Patrol agents, federal and state, working together mm -hmm. a little close, uh, very closely. And now I'm seeing a, a bigger divide and a bigger, uh, a bitter bit of, uh, of uh, uh, animosity that's growing there, which could be dangerous. The Justice Department, in its letter to Governor Abbott threatening legal action, says that the state of Texas is violating federal law. They also write about humanitarian concerns, and they specifically mentioned the buoys that they believe violate the law and some international treaties. But they also write about, quote, related structures. And you've seen the evidence of some of those migrants stepping on that wire, which they say has been underwater, and that's where they're encountering it. If you were governor, would you continue this operation? I'm not too sure if I would use the razor wire as uh, as a deterrent. Uh, I would I would much w rather see working with Congress and working with the White House for a real solution. These aren't real solutions. 
these are these are roadblocks that are that are just uh, historically aren't going to solve this problem. This okay. problem gets solved when people stop making that track. And part of I think of stop making that track is going down the route of legal pathways. Right now, there are very few legal pathways. Nine out of ten people are are claiming asylum. They're not going to qualify for asylum. They're going to have to live their lives in the shadows. Forever. I, I introduced a bill. It's called the Higher Act. It has a dozen Republicans, half a dozen Democrats, uh, endorsed by 40 outside groups, uh, the, the Farm Bureau, the U.S. Chamber, the Hispanic Chamber, uh, some immigration uh, groups as well. And I think we need to get people that want to come over here for economic purposes to come through the front door. Imagine I if you didn't have to be smuggled in a train. I, I do want to end on the Higher Act because you do have pretty broad bipartisan support. But before before we do that, it's significant that you're saying that what Greg Abbott, your governor, Republican governor, is doing is not a real solution. So what the Higher Act would do, you just explained that. I thought it was interesting that the San Antonio Express says it is a bill that merits support. And they write, quote, we've had our fair share of disagreements with you, with Representative Gonzalez, but he has repeatedly modeled bipartisanship and is invested in finding solutions. While this is a narrow bill that falls within a large, complicated system, it serves as a model and holds promise for future reforms. Do you believe that this bill would directly decrease the number of migrants crossing the border in your district illegally? I do. And, and the number one the number one reason is it would get us to stop talking about illegal immigration and focus in so much on the blame game that you see go back and forth and more focused on, wait a second, how do we funnel more people here legally through the legal route, not pathway to citizenship, not some of these other things that are very contentious, but work visas. I mean, there are shortages in every single industry. If you're tired of waiting 30 minutes to get a beer, the higher act can help you. If you're tired of waiting two weeks to see a doctor because there's a lack of nurses, the higher act can help you. So it's uh, it's it's a tangible solution. But more importantly, how do you just get Congress to work again? Mm -hmm. How do you get Democrats and Republicans to come together? You see these images, you hear these stories. It, it, it should pull at everybody's heartstring. Uh, the Americans that are that are lives that are impacted uh, that live along my district because of this crisis. It can all come to an end if we can start focus on real tangible solutions. The uh, higher act isn't intended to solve everything. But it's intended to make one step forward in the 118th Congress. So that way we can take another step. And then all of a sudden, maybe we're walking before we're running. We will see if the speaker uh, agrees with you and views it as with merit to bring to the floor. Thank you very much, Congressman Tony Gonzalez. Thank you. Turning our attention now to Jerusalem, thousands of protesters are in the streets. Hundreds of businesses are closed on what could be one of the most consequential days in Israel's history. Supporters are also in the streets there embracing the potential change. Lawmakers are voting on part of the government's plan to curb the power of Israel's Supreme Court. And we actually just learned that the proceedings may be ahead of schedule. There could actually be a vote very soon. CNN Sadas Gold is live in Jerusalem. She's been following all of this very closely, frankly, following it for months. So, Hadas, where do we stand at this hour? So we are right now outside of the Israeli Supreme Court. This is the road to the Israeli parliament. That's why you see so many protesters here. And actually what they're doing right now is they're gathered around screens that are showing the live action on the parliament because any minute now we are expecting the votes to commence for the second and then final readings on this legislation. You can hear, of course, protesters around me are chanting. They're chanting things like shame to the, to the members of parliament. They're chanting things like democracy. We know that uh, protesters have been trying to make their way 
to as close to the parliament as possible, but police are blocking them. Police have said that they've arrested at least 19 protesters so far. We've seen them use things like water cannons to try to disperse protesters, although I do have to say it's almost 95 degrees, so the water cannons might actually be a welcome relief to some of these protesters here, but the heat is not stopping them from coming out because for them, this legislation, they believe, would give the government unfettered power to do what it wants without a check on the government because this legislation is trying to strip the Supreme Court's ability away of declaring of stopping government actions and saying that they are unreasonable. Now, we've seen a flurry of reports that there's there's reports of ministers trying to work to a consensus, work to try and delay this vote in, in some capacity. But all indications are pointing that Benjamin Netanyahu and his government are going to be pushing ahead. Now, we can see action in the next few minutes if they halt the voting on the parliamentary floor. And that's why you're hearing these protesters starting to get louder and louder because they want the lawmakers inside parliament to hear their shouts. Now, we've heard from President Joe Biden in the last 24 hours. We've heard from thousands of Israeli military reservists saying that they will not serve if this legislation passes. Benjamin Netanyahu himself was in hospital getting a pacemaker just about 24 hours ago, and he came essentially straight from the hospital here to the parliament because he feels as though this needs to be pushed. But also, he's getting a lot of pressure internally from his own coalition partners that they need to get this through. Otherwise, it could topple his own government. It could topple him from power. So we're about to really reach the nadir of this drama right now. Votes in parliament expected to take place in the next few minutes. Protesters here getting louder and louder by the minute, guys. Really something. Hadass, appreciate it. We'll continue to check in with you. And of course, keep us posted on any of those developments. Thank you. New this morning, Ukraine is taking credit for the drone attack, attacks, I should say, in Moscow overnight. Uh, an official says CNN's Ukraine def defense agency was responsible for the strikes. The Russian military says two attack drones crashed into buildings after being intercepted with electronic warfare. One of them hit a Russian defense ministry building that houses the military's orchestra. The other uh, reports no injuries there. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky had vowed retaliation after a week of deadly strikes on the city of Odessa. That's where we find Alex Markart. He is not only in Odessa, he is inside a historic cathedral that was badly damaged from those strikes. Walk us through what you're seeing. Well, first of all, that is a remarkable claim of responsibility uh, by Ukraine for that drone attack on Moscow. And it does come after these uh, incredibly intense strikes for basically the past week on this city. And so much of the damage has been here in the city center, the historic center of Odessa, which is a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Some 25 different architectural monuments have been damaged. We are in uh, the, well, the main cathedral, the biggest cathedral, Orthodox cathedral uh, in Odessa. Uh, it has been significant, severely damaged. This is the length of the cathedral. You can see back there. Uh, uh, some uh, a blackened area. We understand an electrical fire was start, started after uh, the missile strike. Workers are, have been working around the clock since the strike to try to clear the debris from here. We're trying to stay out of the way. Uh, that's why we're wearing these hard hats that they've asked us to wear. And I'm going to ask uh, Scott McQueen, my cameraman, to, to just pan up. You can see these, this beautiful ceiling where frescoes have been destroyed. And then up in the dome there, uh, the windows have been blown out. Just e extraordinary damage to this magnificent cathedral. And then if we come around this way, up there is the altar. Um, you can see there the, the pillars are on their side or leaning over. And were it not for that wall there, that entire thing uh, likely would have collapsed. And then finally, over here in this corner, this is where most of the destruction place on the sky pouring through because there is no more roof. That is where we understand 
that the rocket came crashing through, uh, going down at least two floors. This hard marble floor completely pockmarked uh, by debris uh, that carved out these pockets uh, in that marble. Guys, this really does speak to what we've heard from uh, Ukrainian officials calling for more air defenses uh, in the wake of these extraordinary strikes in, uh, in, in Odessa. President Zelensky himself saying what is needed now to fend off this Russian terror is a full-fledged sky shield. Guys. Wow. Before you go, uh, some of these strikes, Alex, are coming very close to the Romanian side of the Danube River. And that begs the question, what does this mean as the war inches closer and closer and closer with these Russian strikes to NATO territory? Well, there was a strike earlier today by Russian drones uh, against what we understand to be a grain infrastructure right along the border with Romania. That, Dan the, that border between Romania and Ukraine, is they are separated there by the Danube River. And it is, it is remarkably close to NATO territory. We have seen some of the fighting spill over into Poland there before, uh, Ukrainian air defense missile falling in Poland. But this is a Russian missile uh, coming very close to NATO territory. It just speaks to the fact that this fighting is all across the country. We're here in Odessa, which is nowhere near a front line, and yet Russia has been pummeling this city. They've been hitting Lviv, which is near to Poland, and now uh, this area, this border area near, uh, near to Romania. It certainly is going to uh, raise the alert level of NATO countries. We're going to hear some discussions about Article 5. Of course, uh, if Russia were to decide to strike a NATO country, and we're very far from that right now, but if that were the case, and of course, the NATO Article 5 means that other NATO allies would come to the defense of that country. So this is an extraordinarily close strike uh, to NATO territory. It really, is. it really is. Alex, thank you for giving us that perspective. We appreciate it. Alex Marquardt reporting for us live in Odessa, Ukraine this morning. New this morning, the U.N. command says conversations have started with North Korea about U.S. Army Private Travis King. He, of course, is the soldier who crossed the DMZ into the country last week. He has not been seen or heard from since. The conversation uh, has commenced with the KPA through the mechanisms of the armistice agreement. King was facing transfer back to the U.S. after being convicted of assault in South Korea. Military officials, though, say it is unclear why he willfully crossed without authorization. So we're less than a month away from the first Republican primary debate. What former President Trump is hinting at maybe doing instead of getting on that stage to debate his Republican rivals? Plus a tornado destroying this Pfizer plant in North Carolina. The damage done to the company's drug inventory. What that could mean for you just ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Oh, the latest question looming over the 2024 race. Will Donald Trump show up to the first Republican presidential primary debate or could he perhaps instead attend a separate event? Just yesterday, Trump responded to a Truth Social post suggesting that he should do a one whether he should do a one on one interview with Tucker Carlson the night of the Fox debate. Trump responding, interesting. So many people have suggested this. Clearly, that made Harry Enten laugh, our senior data, senior data reporter. Um, a little chuckle from you. The reality, Trump may or may not show up. He did meet the donor threshold. He did meet the polling threshold. Who else? Yes. So right now, we have six candidates. You mentioned the former president. Ron DeSantis, Tim Scott, Nikki Haley, Chris Christie, and Vivek Ramaswamy have all met both of those thresholds. So those six candidates, at this point, it looks like they will be on the stage, of course, only if they want to be. 
I'll note that there are two other folks who are at least close to making the debate. The former Vice President Mike Pence, he's hit the poll criteria, but not the donor one. And Doug Burgum, the North Dakota governor, says he's hit the donor criteria, but not the poll one. So right now we're a stage of six if Trump decides to debate, but we could go to eight. And then there are a bunch of other people who might not be close at this point to meeting that poll and donor threshold. But we'll see what happens the closer we get to that debate. A lot of uh, Republican candidates are turning their attention to Tim Scott, interestingly, because he's polling so well, especially in terms of his favorability, right? Yeah. So this, to me, is one of the most interesting questions, right? We've been talking about a two-way race, you know, in terms of Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis. But what happens as these other candidates become better known? And Tim Scott is one of those, because I want you to take a look here. This is the favorable ratings for Scott, Trump, and DeSantis among Republican voters who hold a viewpoint of all, all three, right? We've eliminated those without an opinion. Look who has the highest favorable rating amongst this group. It's Tim Scott at 89%. That's higher than Donald Trump's 82%, and Ron DeSantis's 81%. And I think the question is, will Scott move up in the polls the better known he becomes? And I want you to take a look here. This is Iowa, New Hampshire, fresh polling out over the last week. Look, Donald Trump still well ahead in both these states, but look who rounds out the top three. It's Tim Scott who's moving up in the polls. So this is the question. Will this two-way race become a three-way race, especially as a lot of Republicans perhaps have soured a little bit on Ron DeSantis in this Fascinating, race? Fascinating, Harry. Thank you very much. Thank you. The extreme heat posing problems in more ways than one, including increasing the tick population. That's right, how to best protect yourself and your family. That's next. Also, a nightmare in Greece is a massive wildfire. Fires force thousands of residents and tourists to pack up and leave. Often with just a moment's notice, we're going to take you there. Just ahead. Scenes of chaos and fear this morning as wildfires rage in southern Greece. Thousands of tourists and residents have been forced to flee their homes and hotels. Some have described just harrowing journeys running from flames at their backs. Tourists now sleeping at airports waiting to fly home. And officials say firefighters continue to battle dozens of fires across the country. Our Sam Kiley is live in Greece with more reporting. These fires have been going on for more than a week. Evacuations like this, pretty unprecedented, right? Well, there have been an impressive response both by uh, Greek civilians and indeed by the authorities to what unfolded in Rhodes. But arguably, the poor old Greeks have had a lot of practice for this and they know that there is worse to come, Poppy. The Greek Prime Minister has just announced that what he believes is the country is effectively in a state of war. He doesn't declare war or declare a state of emergency, of course. He's speaking rhetorically. But what he's saying is, and did say, is that more of this kind of a horrific event is certain to uh, occur in the southern Mediterranean, not just uh, in Greece. But this is how it unfolded in Rhodes. It's a regular visitor wildfire, and no one knows where or when it will strike. This is tourism in the 21st century. The latest maelstrom in southern Europe, Rhodes, an island of ancient ruins facing a modern apocalypse. Intense heat waves have turned forests into desiccated tinder, yearning for a spark to roar into flame. And anything that fails to flee the inferno has little chance of survival. Greek authorities have evacuated tens of thousands from popular resorts at peak season. 
and the government says it's the largest such operation in the country's history. All the money, passports, clothing. We had to lend a woman some of my wife's clothes because she had nothing to wear. It was terrible. British tour operators are flying empty planes here to bring desperate tourists home. Powerful winds have made life just about bearable for people on these islands living through this heatwave, but those self-same winds are fanning the flames of these infernos. And the problem is spreading. The latest overnight the island of Corfu, where thousands have now been evacuated, and police are bolstering their ranks in anticipation of more to come. The Greek government has been battling wildfires across the country for a week during what's expected to be the longest heatwave this country has ever seen. As temperature records are shattered across Europe and the world, every day our planet has become slightly more unlivable. We are experiencing, here and in many countries, extreme climatic events. Please, I renew my appeal to the leaders of the nations to do something more concrete to limit polluting emissions. It is an urgent challenge and cannot be put off. It concerns everyone. Let us protect our common home. As heat waves and fires are escalating yearly in southern Europe, the threat is now even, perhaps, to the pontiff's own home. Now, Poppy, uh, the long-term reality is now also in Europe in conflict with short-term politics in countries like the United Kingdom. The British Prime Minister there, Rishi Shunak, suggesting that his government may backtrack on its targets to hit net zero because of the uh, austerity that that country is enduring. Meanwhile, of course, as I said, the Greek Prime Minister is effectively saying that his country is at war against fire and climate change and that that is going to be the case right across the Mediterranean for as long as anybody can see, Poppy. Yes, no end in sight for all of this. Sam Kiley, really appreciate the reporting live from Greece. Well, so many people, of course, outside during the summertime, temperatures rising. Along with those temperatures, the tick population is also rising. That means your chances of potentially contracting Lyme disease, which is carried by certain ticks, are also higher. Joining us now with more on how to protect yourself, CNN medical correspondent Meg Terrell. So Meg, you and I were talking in the break. Full disclosure, two people, one of them being my mom, Aww. very close to me in the last two weeks, have been diagnosed with the Lyme disease. Really? And it took a while to get there. Mm. They kept thinking maybe they had mild COVID. Yeah. So why are we seeing, is it there are just more ticks and that's why more people are now getting bitten and infected? Yeah, the, there are more ticks and they're in more places. That's what experts have been telling CNN about what's going on here. And primarily, we, we expect to see Lyme disease in the Northeast, in the Midwest, but really anywhere these black-legged ticks, also known as deer ticks, exist, you can see Lyme disease risk. You can also see it in the West Coast where another kind of tick carries Lyme disease. And so uh, this is an increasing problem, uh, and we all have to be really careful this summer. Uh, I grew up in... Minnesota and summers in the northern woods of Minnesota where they are all over. Yeah. Deer ticks look a little bit different than regular ticks, right? What should people be looking for? And has this Lyme disease grown over the years? Yeah, it actually has. If you look over the last three decades, the incidence of Lyme disease has actually doubled since the early 1990s. Wow. And so it's both more prevalent and happening in more places. You can see the difference between 96 and 2018 
here. And the reason for that is warming temperatures. So the tick can exist in more places and it can sort of live its life cycle in more places. Uh, but also deer are just encountering people more frequently, the white-tailed deer population, which carries these ticks. And one of the important things to look out for is just how small they can be. They're they can tiny. be the size of poppy yeah. seeds. And those yeah. ticks can spread Lyme. So you have to be really careful. Wow. It's also important to note that, that it's much more treatable than when it was first discovered. You can get an antibiotic now not a reason to get bitten by a tick, obviously. But that's also good to know that it's not quite what felt like the sentence that it was initially when it was discovered. Yeah, no, that's really important. And so if you, the most important thing to do is try to avoid getting ticks. And yes. so cover up your skin, tuck your pants into your socks. Uh, you can use permethrin-treated clothing. That's mm. something that can kind of repel ticks. Um, there are repellents, but they don't work quite as well as they do for mosquitoes and mm. things like that. You can also stick your clothes in the dryer when you get home. If you've been in an area where you expect there are ticks for huh. 10 minutes, that should huh. kill ticks. Jump in the shower, do careful tick checks. The CDC has a diagram to show you everywhere you should check and remember how small they can be. Yeah. But if you find one, you got to take it off right away and try to do it cleanly. You could save it in some alcohol to show a healthcare provider and look out for symptoms because, as you said, they can be similar to what you see for a cold. Yeah. And you can get treated with antibiotics, and that can cure it. Um, the CDC doesn't recommend it for everybody who's been exposed by a tick, though, so you kind of got to okay. talk to your doctor about And check it. your animals, too, right? Yes. The animals are oh, in yeah. Yes, those dogs. Yes. Check your pups. Thanks, so. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Democrats are slamming Florida's new standards for teaching black history. Governor Ron DeSantis has a history of embracing the classroom culture wars, and this is no different. So how could it impact his bid for the White House? That's next. Also, Barbenheimer shattering box office expectations. In the end, it is a Barbie world. We'll tell you why. As parents, teachers, and students gear up for the start of the school year, the classroom culture wars continue. In fact, they may be pushing into overdrive. And we're not just talking about uh, public schools. We're going elementary school all the way up through universities. Within just the past few days, the president of Texas A&M University resigned following controversy over the school's failed attempt to hire a new professor to lead its journalism program. There was backlash to the professor's hiring because of her work on diversity, equity, and inclusion programs. In California, Governor Gavin Newsom just bought a $1.5 million fine against a school district after it refused to carry a textbook which references the first out gay politician elected in that state, the late Harvey Milk. A school board member there called Milk a pedophile earlier this year. It is really important to note there are no credible accusations of pedophilia against milk. And then, of course, there's Florida. Vice President Kamala Harris flew down herself to bash Republicans for their new state standards for teaching black history, including one new rule which would require that middle school students be taught, quote, how slaves develop skills which in some instances could be applied for their personal benefit. Florida governor and 2024 presidential candidate Ron DeSantis was asked to clarify that standard on Friday. Take a listen. I mean, I didn't do it and I wasn't involved in it, um, but I think um, I think what they're doing is I think that they're probably going to show um, some of the folks that eventually parlayed, uh, you know, being a blacksmith into into doing things later later in life. Um, but the reality is all of that is rooted in whatever is factual. They listed everything out. I mean, these were scholars who put that together. It was not anything that was um, that was done politically. Joining us now, CNN political commentator, former White House senior policy advisor and former national coalitions director for Biden-Harris 2020, Ashley Allison. Also with us, Republican strategist and former U.S. Senate candidate, Joe Pinion. Good to have both of you with us this morning. Um, I was struck really by uh, Ron DeSantis doubling down 
on this. Uh, you know, these are the standards. This is the history. Hey, you could be a blacksmith and then you could go use that somewhere. Um, it is remarkable. And I think Will Hurt perhaps mm -hmm. uh, put it really well when he said in a tweet, um, and I think we can call it up here, basically saying, I can't believe I have to say this, but slavery wasn't a jobs program that taught beneficial skills. It was literally dehumanizing and subjugated people as property because they lacked any rights or freedoms. When you look at this, Joe, especially as a Republican strategist, when you look at this, how is it that this is where Ron DeSantis is going? He is doubling down on this, and there is this push that somehow this is a more accurate view, accurate telling of U.S. history. Well, look, the, the only thing slavery taught anyone was that there are no limits to the brutality uh, that lurks in the hearts of men. And I think the only thing that those comments teach us is that uh, in many ways the vestiges of that brutality still exist. Uh, so there's nothing worse than trying to tell the people who are descendants of such brutal subjugation that somehow there were some lessons learned along the way. So it, it's a sad day, but I think ultimately and unfortunately, uh, it distracts from the real issue. I mean, we talked a little bit about uh, the tenureship that was denied there. Certainly we can talk about it. You mean at Texas A&M? At Texas A&M. Mm -hmm. uh, certainly you can talk about that in the context of this article, but it's, it's a broader issue. The fact that uh, black professors have struggled to get tenureship at many institutions, including the most prestigious institutions in this time, as Professor Cornell West, uh, how that worked out for him. So uh, issue by issue, I think the actual issues confronting black people in many ways on a day-to-day -day basis get lost because of the insanity on the far fringes, when in reality, you're looking at California, where we have 70, over 70% of juniors uh, who are not reading at proficient levels. You look at Florida, you see those numbers uh, much the same way for black students. So those are the real issues. Those are the real stakes, the civil rights issue of our time. And we have people trying to relitigate uh, the values of the civil rights movement in the first place. This is the second time, Ashley, in a year that we have seen Vice President Harris go to Florida and speak in a way that I think many, many of her Democratic supporters have wanted to see even more of from her. Was she in her element with what she delivered there? I think she was doing what the vice president of the United States should be doing. And as the first woman of color, the first black woman, the first woman to ever serve in that high office, it's so important to have her voice in this moment. She went to Florida the first time to talk about abortion yeah. because the governor uh, DeSantis passed a six week abortion bill. And so she spoke up for the women across this country who have for the first many like myself for the first time in their life have lost a constitutional right. And now we see the shenanigans that the governor is pushing around. This is not up for debate. That debate is over. Slavery is wrong. No one benefited from slavery except for the slaveholders that profited from uh, free labor of black folks. Um, and so she went and said, no more. We are not going to do this. And we are better than that as a country. And so I appreciate her voice. I hope we hear more of it um, as a candidate, but most importantly, as the vice president of the United States. Mm -hmm. It's remarkable to me, too, that this is in terms of the culture wars. And we know, look, we know that the culture wars do work with certain voters, mm -hmm. that they are engaging certain voters. But, to, you know, to both of your points, it's, it's clear we all know what, what, what slavery was, and it was terrible, and it should not be repeated, and it was not beneficial. What's remarkable is that there seems to be this feeling that history is a threat, and I think to a dear friend who is German who told me about the field trips in high school to concentration camps so that you learn a fulsome history of what happened, not in a way that says you should feel bad because your parents or your grandparents may have been involved in that Nazi regime. It's simply 
let's learn from history so we don't repeat it. Well, yeah. Why is history such a threat? Well, I, I think those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Obviously, it's an old saying, tied, tried and true, uh, because we know where history tells us that things like this go. I, I think that there are two things that, that are kind of juxtaposed here. There is the very real concerns of parents, whether you're talking about them being exposed to material of a sexual nature they think at an inappropriate age, whether you think that they're concerned about the fact that we are teaching history in a manner uh, that in many ways has children to have more questions and answers at an age before they're able to fully comprehend them. Those are real concerns. What is not a real concern is trying to go down to the Florida Department of Education website, as I did, just have to make sure I wasn't actually losing my mind, where they was there as a clarifying bookmark. It's literally yeah. what it says. Yeah. Uh, it's that true. We're page here. six and page 17, <laughs> yeah. two important clarifications they felt. It, it, it was, it, it, it's shocking. It would shock the conscience. And so I, I think the hard truth is that the overwhelming majority of Republicans, including the ones that texted me last night, do not believe mm. in this, don't feel this way, don't want to have a world where we try to uh, dress up slavery as a good thing. But I think, unfortunately, that's the only conversation that gets had, not the conversation about when should we have these conversations, not the conversation about is there a better way to tell the whole story. None of that gets discussed because, again, we're ending here with idiocy on both ends of the political spectrum. Final word, quick. Well, I appreciate and I'm excited to hear that some Republicans are standing. I wish that the folks in the Republican field right now would all come out with unquestionable deniability that no one in that uh, no slave benefit from slavery. That's a simple line that they all should put on their website and should say and stop this conversation. And if Ron DeSantis can't do that, then he should get out the race. He doesn't deserve to be the president of the United States. Ashley Allison, thank you. Joe Pinion, thanks. Good to have you both. So actor Jamie Foxx, we're finally hearing from him for the first time since that medical emergency landed him in the hospital. His message to fans and his well-wishers, that's next. We have breaking news out of Jerusalem at this hour. A final vote on that controversial bill, part of the judicial system overhaul. CNN's Hadass Gold is live for us now with the very latest. So Hadass, uh, the vote, we were talking about the vote moving up a little more quickly than anticipated. Yeah, the vote has actually now passed 64 to zero. This vote that will take away the Supreme Court's ability to stop government actions, declaring them unreasonable, it has passed. The reason it was 64 to zero is because all the members of the opposition left the floor in, in protest to this vote. We are just outside the Supreme Court. Organizers here have set up big screens so that protesters can see what's happening on the parliament. And you can hear that they are getting very loud and they are actually all starting to walk down towards the parliament building. They don't seem to be indicating that they're going to be leaving anytime soon, despite the fact that this passed. It appears that all attempts at last minute negotiations failed. We know that there was lots of back and forth with the coalition and opposition to try to negotiate potentially a delay. Those appear to have failed. The government has managed to pass the first aspect of this massive judicial overhaul. This isn't the only part of the judicial overhaul. It's one bill of several. We're seeing on the screens of what's happening on the parliament floor, coalition members congratulating each other, including Benjamin Netanyahu, just out of the hospital, actually, for a pacemaker that was just installed. He literally left the hospital this morning and came straight to the parliament when this vote passed. Now, this does not mean necessarily that starting at this very moment, the Supreme Court cannot stop government 
bad actions. There are still several steps that need to be taken, and ironically, one of those steps is most likely an immediate legal challenge to this legislation, which will ironically be heard in front of the Supreme Court, likely. Now, if the Supreme Court decides that this legislation cannot stand because it is, ironically, unreasonable in their eyes, then we are set up here for a major political crisis here for a country that has no written constitution. That's partly what's the issue here. Now, for these protesters, this passing, this they believe is the beginning of the end of an independent judiciary. This they believe is the beginning of government having unfettered power to do what it wants because the Supreme Court is the only check on the government power here. I don't think that these protesters are going home anytime soon. I have a feeling we're going to be in for a very eventful next few hours as these protesters get potentially even more riled up, guys. Hadass, what will happen now? Because Benjamin Netanyahu and those who supported it said the judiciary needed reform. It had too much power. Opponents say if you take away this sole check on the government, then you essentially have a dictatorship. So now exactly what happens once these bills pass? So most likely will happen when we know the Israel Bar Association has said they're going to file an immediate petition in front of the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court can file an injunction, a temporary injunction, stopping the legislation from being enforced. Now, that might happen. We have a feeling that that will happen. And then there will be a legal battle in front of the Supreme Court about whether this can stand. There's a lot of unanswered legal questions here, meddling questions here about what the legality of this will be. And I think also in the more immediate will be, keep in mind, thousands of military reservists have said they will not heed the call to serve if this legislation passes. This legislation has now passed. So now we're going to see whether they're going to live up to that pledge, whether if they get called up for service, if something happens on the north with Lebanon, if something happens with Gaza, if something happens even with Iran, will they call up, will they heed the call to get into their jets, to get into their tanks and serve as per, as per their military reserve duty? And if they don't, will they be arrested? Will there be legal ramifications for them? These are all all the questions now on the table because this legislation has now passed. All right. Uh, watching it very closely, Israel, of course, one of this country's right. closest allies, President Biden, of course, was very direct in where he stands on this and what he thinks should happen. Uh, the, those words uh, may have been heard, but it didn't certainly change anything it does. No, it didn't. And we've heard from President Biden now twice in the past week urging Netanyahu, urging Israeli leaders, take a step back, take time to come to a consensus. There's no need to rush this, have a negotiation. But clearly that pressure didn't seem to have much an effect. Now, remember, Benjamin Netanyahu has not yet been invited to the White House, not been yet invited officially for that big White House visit. This judicial overhaul was one of those potential reasons why. Now, we did hear from President Biden saying that they do, and from the White House saying that they do expect Netanyahu and Biden to meet sometime in the U.S. soon. Now the question will be, this legislation has passed. There was no compromise negotiation. Will that invitation still stand? How will this affect U.S.-Israel relationships? The Israelis have been saying for the longest time, you know, this is our own internal debate. This has nothing to do with the United States. Our partnership with the United States is strong, especially when it comes to security issues. There's a lot of questions, though, now hanging, especially with all these military reservists saying that they will not serve. We have yet to hear, of course, from the White House on this legislation passing since this has just happened in the last few minutes. But it could very easily affect U.S.-Israeli relations right now with all of this uh, legal political questions going on.
Absolutely. Hadass, really appreciate the reporting. So good to have you there on the ground. We'll continue to check in with you. Stay with us. We'll be right back. It was a sea of pink this weekend across the nation's movie theaters. Barbie raked in a stunning $155 million in its debut, taking the crown for the largest opening weekend of the year. It was released on the same day, of course, as director Christopher Nolan's historical epic Oppenheimer, which inspired what we haven't seen in some time, a double feature weekend. Joining us now, news editor at Variety, Jordan Moreau. Good to have you here. We should note, obviously, Barbie, made by our parent company, mm-hmm. Uh, Warner Brothers, which is part of our parent company, Discovery. But what a weekend, and it did not disappoint. It exceeded not only the money expectations, but I think you saw it, viewer expectations. I thought, I mean, I loved it. Full disclosure, so. (laughs) No, it was incredible. Um, It it exceeded expectations. No one thought that Barbie or Oppenheimer could do this much at the box office. And this was a weekend we haven't seen in a very long time. Uh, in years to have two movies do this well at the same time. And it's fascinating that you have these two big summer blockbusters, right? Which hasn't happened, as you pointed out, in so long. And you also have it at a moment where these stars can't even react to the success because of the strikes. Yeah, it's it's an an odd moment right now. You can't have Margot Robbie, Ryan Gosling out doing press uh, to talk about the success. But I mean, I think everyone still knows the marketing for this movie was everywhere. You yes. see pink people in costumes everywhere. Oppenheimer, Barbie. Um, it all came together and I think everyone's uh, benefiting. The fans are benefiting for Do sure. Do you think the studios will capitalize on, well, I don't know how you make another a sequel to Oppenheimer, but I haven't seen it yet. Yeah, but, Oppenheimer. But on the Barbie, I mean, it's really exceeded expectations. A different kind of film too. Yeah. I mean, hopefully we see a sequel for Barbie. It's made so much money. It seems like the natural next step would be to make a sequel. Um, Oppenheimer, we kind of know the story. I don't know if that one quite lends itself to a sequel, but um, hopefully, you know, this is not the last we see of Barbie. Uh, We also wanted to Jamie Foxx speaking out for the first time Mm. after being hospitalized. He's been very private about what happened, but speaking out, I think we have a little bit of that sound. I know a lot of people were waiting, you know, or wanting to hear updates. But to be honest with you, I just didn't want you to see me like that, man. You know, I want you to see me laughing, having a good time, partying, cracking a joke, doing a movie, television show. I didn't want you to see me with uh, with tubes uh, running out of me. I went to hell and back. And my road to recovery uh, had some potholes as well. But... Um, I'm, uh, I'm, 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 I'm coming back. A, a lot of support for Jamie Foxx, understandably. Fans mm. happy to hear from him. There's still a lot of concern, though, mm. about what it can mean. He says he's coming back. You know, this is littered with potholes in terms of the recovery. Um, do we have a sense of, of whether he plans to share more about what happened to him? I mean, no one's really sure. There haven't been a lot of details about what happened to him. Finally, he's speaking out to his fans. I mean, everyone was worried about him. This is a pretty beloved actor. Um, I think it's that everyone can breathe a sigh of relief now. And I think when he's ready to share more details about what happened, I think he'll find a time and a, a way to do that. And he has a new movie out now on Netflix. Yes, uh, he's in They Clone Tyrone. So, um, you know, because of the strike, because of his recovery, he's not able to really promote that right now. But I think everyone watching on Netflix has been a fan of it. And uh, they're happy to see he's doing well now. Okay. Well, so are we. We really appreciate you. Thank you so much. Being with us. I have to I have a busy weekend ahead of Barbie. You and have a lot of movies. We may have to make an Oppenheimer date. Because neither Let's one of us it. has seen that. We'll matinee. do that. We'll go to a matinee. It's my favorite kind. Jordan, Jordan. good to see you. Yeah. Thank, Thank you so much. Thanks very much. And thanks all of you for joining us. We will see you back here tomorrow morning. CNN News Central starts now. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening.
When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.